G'day guys, welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the full life cycle of working canines and handlers. The podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you're looking for our Australian-made tactical canine equipment, go to origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. G'day guys, welcome to another episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. Um, today I've got another Aussie guest on, we've got Reg Ramage. Um, Reg is a former canine handler from the can't, bleh, canine handler from the first military peace police, uh, for fuck's sake, the first military police battalion. G'day guys. It already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a tough, too many words mate, too many words. <laughs> Uh, Mate, you know, okay. I think it's, I think it's the headphones, dude. Because when I um, I, I normally just have the laptop, and I don't have these hanging out, and I've just got a yeah. microphone. Yeah, but now I'm using the headphones. It's like you can hear your voice back, and you just, oh, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, good. Is it actually? I'm hearing that now, mate. So, well, we'll get through it. I'm sure. Yeah, sweet. It's definitely nothing to do with me. It's probably COVID or war in Ukraine or <laughs> yeah, that's not exactly crypto cryptocurrency or Twitter or something. It's definitely the five G, yeah. mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, bro. Well, mate, welcome to the show, dude. Thanks for coming on, man. Um, no, awesome. And uh, mate, so I like to. I usually like to start by going back to your childhood and just hearing a bit about you growing up like we grew up and then how that shaped you joining the military and then if there's something in with about dogs in there um that sort of got you interested early hit us with that mate yeah okay so mate i had a pretty interesting childhood to say the least and i'll i'll probably keep it as brief as i possibly can but um i've lived in lots of places i was born in tamworth um country music capital of australia uh obviously don't remember much of that i left there about eight years old and moved into queensland um uh, to be honest without without reason I, I, my mother was a bit of a gypsy so we moved around quite a lot i uh, spent the time in uh, eagleby uh, mount cravat uh, lowood all these areas down the southeast queensland um, even up to the sunshine coast there for, for a little bit of time um, during that time, mate, I guess a lot of my time was spent with horses uh, more than dogs. Um, I did spend a bit of time with dogs as well. I, I, um, we were, I was mainly, a, mainly uh, the kind of horse stuff we did was horse shows, I, um, sort of Western events and, and those kind of things, which, mate, to be honest, I really love and I, and I miss. One day I'll, I might just get a horse just for the fun of it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it was sort of more the horses rather than dogs. There was a time... Though a little time when I was, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 years old, I started to train a, a border collie we had there. And, um, oh, mate, I, I did all right um, for, for a kid who had no idea what he was doing. And that was probably my first introduction to using food without any knowledge of understanding what that meant in the, the I guess, the psychology side of things and the behaviours. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess... What year, what year was that? Sorry, mate. Yep, you're right. Keep going. Oh, I was just asking, what what year was that when you were doing that stuff with oh, the food and whatnot? Two, well, it wouldn't be two thousand and anything. That would have been ninety ninety four. Okay. Yeah, so a long time ago, and um, 
you know, I mean, it was just teaching her. I mean, as you know, mate, border collies are switched on animals, so they don't take much, much training. So it was, um, yeah, good, good dog. But most of my life, mate, I've had Dobermans as, as dogs. We had a couple of German Shepherds there for a while. Um, they were, we, we had to get rid of one, unfortunately, because he ended up chewing on a bloody truck driver one day, um, for, trying to protect my mother at the time, because not, not for anything Shit. bad was happening. This poor bastard come in and shoved his hand in the window to help my wife. Oh, sorry, my, my mother with the car, and my dogs end up chewing on him. I think, yeah, I can't remember. He was a big white German Shepherd. His name was Jed. That's made their childhood memory, so I, they might be a little bit exaggerated, but um, I, I remember at the time it was, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Was but, it a bad um, chew? Oh, I don't know, mate. I, I know it was enough to, yeah, I guess that guy won't be sticking his arms in any windows anytime soon. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I, I guess for me, mate, what got me into to dogs was more that relationship between animal and human and I've always had that um, rather than just a dog itself but um, how did I end up in the military uh, that's a that's a long story in itself uh, and I'll, I'll give you a very short version um, I guess when I was a young, really? young, young fellow was my mum sort of said don't get a tattoo don't ride a motorcycle don't join the army I've done all three things <laughs> so, so um, but that wasn't on purpose, but uh, at the time, mate, I was a bit of a, I was a musician of all things, um, working as a detailer um, for my my wife's father, sort of my girlfriend at the time, um, and I had to sort of go, I wanted to marry that lady, and her name's Jess, and, and I needed to sort of give my father-in-law the confidence that I was going to do something with my life, rather than um, go around pubs singing songs, and um in detail and cars, so I decided to join the army, and uh, that's how I ended up in the army, mate. Yeah, so because we got time, bro. What what's the long version? Is there like a, a longer version, or is it you just yeah, skipping some unnecessary details? I, I guess, mate. The the life I lived as a child was one that I didn't want to live as an adult, and uh, and I mean that is, uh, I guess, without getting too soppy and, and and philosophical, I guess I've been a guy that's been drank the Kool-Aid of loyalty, honour, respect, uh, all those things that we, we speak about and, and really see done or, or do ourselves. And um, I didn't come from a good background in those areas. Um, so I guess I made it in my, my mind that um, I didn't want to be any of those things that I was, I guess, was an example to me as, as a child. Um, and, so I, and that's why I guess in the end I ended up in the military police after a bit of time, um, but I wanted to do good by people, not not to double me mates, which we all get the the, the big brand on, um, but to, to, to hopefully <laughs> to hopefully support and and do what I can in those areas. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, yeah. So um. Uh, yeah. So that's probably the reason, mate, is just to to. To make a big change, um, I mean, a very big uh, is a hard right uh, from the, the person I was, not the person, yeah, the person I was and the life I was leading to going in the military. Mate. I, I don't know if everyone's got a similar story. I think probably week three or week four at Kapuka, mate, I was, I was keen to get out of that. I said, oh, I've, I've made a big mistake here. <laughs> but uh, I also had a very, uh, what's the word, um, influential and very convincing section commander at the time uh, who, who who had me stay uh, to the end, so. 
Yeah, awesome, man. So obviously you, you're sort of alluding to like a bit of trauma there in your childhood, and we don't have to go into it, but is that is that the sort of stuff that made you go, hey, that was probably a bad example of, of, a, of a male role model or a female role model, you know, the the army itself is interesting, so that's probably something that drew a young bloke like you to the army. And then was the military police, you sort of had that background from your childhood and you were like, if I'm going to do the cool thing in the army, which yeah. is the army, but yeah. if I'm in the army, I want to, I want to go chase the, the, the people that I saw as a, as a negative influence on my life. Is that what, you, what you're sort of alluding to? That's, that's a pretty – you've got it, mate. Pretty much struck, spot on. Okay, yeah, sweet. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you, so you actually joined as an MP, right? So you didn't join as anything else? You just went straight to MPs? No, no, mate. I joined as uh, – and don't, don't judge me too harshly, but I joined as infantry. Um, I, got, I got about week five. I said, you know what? I really don't enjoy this. <laughs> so, and uh, I decided to go to, uh, to core transfer at Kapuka, which is uh, to transport. So um, I spent oh, probably the first six years of my, or oh, five or six years of my career in transport, never doing a transport posting. I went straight from Kapuka to Pakapanya to do my basic driver's course and then posted yep. to First Field Regiment, which is now one regiment up in Brisbane. In, Basically, mate, we were, we were glorified gun numbers as a result. I mean, we were the first uh, truck dr or RECT drivers to um, be posted into that unit. Normally, artillery drivers were associated with those tasks, but they made them transport positions. So I'm sure you can imagine the type of um, welcome we received. Um, but <laughs> over time, mate, as with any most units, um, we, we put in the hard yards, we earned our stripes per se, and um, we became part of the team as well. So if I was to sort of say if there was a the hardest time of my time in the Army physically and mentally would have been those four years in one field regiment. But at the same time, mate, um, it was a blast. And as you know, through that trauma bonding and those hard time sort of um, opportunities that you're with your mates, you build some really strong relationships, which I'm still mates with those guys today. I mean, that's, and that's 20, 21 years later. So it's, um, it's so, it shows you a lot for the type of relationships and bonds you build in the army in such a, a short period of time. Um, from there, mate, I guess I was a bit of a, I was found myself on the wrong side of the law on a number of times there, um, which was interesting. Um, but because I, I guess I was riding a motorcycle. Oh, hello. Sorry, mate. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Where, where'd you have me last? I think I think the bloody. Uh, we were just talking about uh, that four years in the army. You said it was the hardest physically, mentally sort of period that you, you had. I think every now and then if this thing shits itself, it starts recording automatically again. So it'll oh, just okay. save in segments. So okay, we'll just right. we'll just fucking continue on as if yep. nothing happened. Yeah. I think it's fine, mate. All right, too easy. Yeah. So, mate, yeah, I had a – I mean, at the same time, like I said, uh, they were the best relationships I've ever had, uh, good men, um, good leaders. Um, and I say men because that's all we had there at the time. Um some really good leaders that I've certainly modelled some of my behaviours off as a result and also some leaders that weren't so great that I've learnt from as well. Um, 
but yeah, I, I really enjoyed that time that I had at Wanfield Regiment. It's funny I say that because at the time none of us wanted to be there, but when we left there, we all went, geez, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, we had some hard days, but geez, we had a good time when we weren't having hard days. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And for, for people listening, the um, like the uh, artillery regiments and the like the cavalry regiments, they're they're notoriously uh, like regimental and very strict and and you know steeped in ceremony and that type of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. And yeah. Uh, and they they hard they hard on it, mate. They they don't back off on it. And I guess that put a lot of those values in me. I guess I, I backed it off a bit um, moving forward, but yeah, like I mean, like you know, we had every every Wednesday we'd have a admin parade. Um, every Thursday before sporties we'd have a full admin parade before sporties, and all those kind of things, morning parades, afternoon parades, all those sort of things. And and I, most of the units I've been to since don't do any of those things unless there's something special yeah. going on. I did not. I did not know about the, the Wednesday parades, and I, and I know there's sports on a Thursday and whatnot. Yeah, it's going to turn the Wi-Fi off from my other devices. Hopefully, it's not going to. I can die. Um, yeah, I, I know that some units have like a sport on the Thursday, but um, in my career, that was always really haphazard. It was like very occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the admin parades on a Wednesday, ugh, fuck that. <laughs> That's right, exactly, mate. No, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, I, I certainly didn't enjoy it, but I guess they're fond memories to look back on is um, in, when you get out of the army or spend a bit of time as you, as you have, mate, you just sort of go, those, those values and those ceremonial things, I guess they're things that have been lost in a long time and I guess um, you, and you, you'll never do that again, so... It's, whether that be for good or for worse, um, there are still those times where, yep, we have traditions, we have values, and we stick to them. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I agree with you, man. Like, I, I used to hate that stuff, right? I was always one of those guys that was like, why do we waste our time with this stupid stuff and why can't we just roll our sleeves up? And I was, I was that guy. But yeah. it's almost like the older I get, I have, I think I have more of an appreciation for what that actually means, that yeah. that discipline the tradition and you know those values it's about the principle as opposed to the actual dogmatic you know yeah this is why yeah. we march around and yeah, that's right. yeah. exactly yeah no i get it mate it's, Doing uh, the and robot. i was the same mate i'm a pretty relaxed dude <laughs> that's classic <laughs> yeah so it's uh but i guess we when you go into those other units that sort of that went away which i think was good to a point because we got to concentrate on what i what I enjoy, which which was uh, practicing the war bit and doing the things that um, I guess what the nation expects us to do, and that's apply violence and on behalf of the country. And and um, don't get me wrong, I see yet that other side of the business, being the traditional side of the business, has its place for that in the in the in the foundations of it. But I really like just getting out there and and doing the job. If you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, I think I, I was probably one of those kind of guys, right? Um, yeah. Uh, what what year was this when you joined? So by the end of that, so what year did you join? And then ninety nine. By the end of so your yeah ninety nine, I joined, and then when did I leave? I left uh, one reg on in end of two thousand three. Oh right, so fuck in that time that you've joined the unit, you've got um, you've got Timor September eleven. 
Afghanistan and Iraq all sort yeah. of kicking off in that time. What's yeah. that like being well, a, a it was exciting time. <laughs> It was exciting times for me. Exactly right, mate. Like in that time, I did get posted to East Timor and um, in 2001. So we were, I was attached to a UN mission, um, FLS-4, um, which is Force Logistics Squadron 4 as a heavy vehicle operator. Um, which was great, mate. For, for me personally, as a driver in East Timor, we got to see more country than anybody. So we'd go all the way to the border, uh, up to Balabo and Batagade and uh, Moliana, all the way up to um, Los Palos, all the way to the Far East, and, and supporting um, Koreans, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Japanese, um, Malaysians, Thais, Jordanians. So it was... For a young fella who's only literally two years from basic training to get posted straight into that position, and I was the only one from one reg to get deployed because I had the right qualifications, um, was fantastic, mate, and, and certainly gave me an early perspective of what hard is and what a, a hard life is, um, I guess, when you look at that, that third world country and how happy people can be when they've got nothing. Um, it is probably the big perspective I've got. Mate, that's a very interesting point, and I, I'd love to explore it, but it would be such a segue from <laughs> yeah, your right. story, the whole, because yeah. um, you know, you know, Dan, Dan Cooper, ex uh, ex regiment guy. Yep, yep. I saw a post that he put up the other day, and it was it was like, hey, have you ever wondered if the Taliban or if the Afghani's have you know PTSD, depression, or whatever? And he's like, they they may do, but I think the point he was making was like they've got so little and they've got such hardship in their life. They don't have fucking time yeah, for that yeah. shit. They've just got to survive. And, and what you just said there resonated with me a lot because yeah. it's almost like the lower down on that Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you yeah. go, the more basic your requirements are, the less yeah. you have to worry about the airy-fairy stuff in your head. Yeah, Not, agree, not to mate. say that it's not that it's not real, but I think, you know, necessity will fucking push that stuff out because you've got to survive so yeah and it does mate i mean you've seen i'm sure you've seen plenty of examples where necessity pushes past your discomfort um on many times whether it be physically or physically or mentally um that that necessity and i guess i guess uh internal sort of um uh, what's the word on behaviors takes over and we we just get on with it and we'll deal with this other stuff later on Free medical, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, free dental, mate. I'll see. <laughs> yeah, gosh, I've got a bit of a toothache yeah, at the moment, but, so I'll go back to dental. But <laughs> but no, Timor was great, mate. That was six month tours and a, a tour of being the, I guess, the, the only bloke from my unit. I had to sort of find my myself and my spot there, and um, got got to spend some time in Akusi, which is the little enclave in West Timor. Um, that was great, mate. We got up to some, had some really good times there, uh, moving some North Koreans into that. Oh, sorry, not North Koreans. Oh, uh, some South Koreans into that area. <laughs> Whoopsie. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was, um, yeah. And like you said, mate, um, September 11 happened while I was at Inogra Barracks. Um, that was amazing. I was only recently married then. And um, got, well, I was at, at home. Everyone's story, mate, looking at the TV, thinking, what the heck? Got to work, and then they locked the barracks down for a week, and they you know the old picket patrols, the old fat man's webbing. Um, uh, well, we had pickaxes, or not pickaxes, you know, the pick handles, 
had to patrol with those around the inaugural barracks and all those kind of things for a while. So yeah, it's um, I guess that for for a bloke like me and most of us who join the military, that's what it's all about. I'm going, you're beauty. We've got another one coming. Let's go. Um, unfortunately, I, I didn't get the opportunity to go due to my position, but um, that's it was a big push. We started to move into that exciting army that has been the last twenty years. Yeah, definitely, man. Is that like after that four years in about that 2003 after the invasion of Iraq in, I think it was March or whatever, yeah. is that part of the, was that part of your decision to move into like an arms corps like MPs? Uh, mate, I actually try, I was considering coming, going into infantry, um, but necessity of looking after wife and child um, came in and a bit of progression in my career. I picked up Lance Jack while I was at, at one field and um, then I got, of all places, mate, I got sent to Sydney as a two-div commander's driver, um, which sounds like a pretty cushy job, and, and physically it is, but um, huge hours, mate, and um, certainly not stimulating for a bloke who just wants to get after it, um, driving around a, a two-star general uh, half of the majority of the time. So in that time, mate, I, I had the Div RSM, which, which was one of Kelly, who then I think has walked to Major Kelly, um, fantastic dude. I said, listen, sir, oh, I'm really keen to get out of here. I think you guys are all nice and lot, but I, I really would like to do something a little bit more exciting. Subsequently, he posted me to uh, yeah. Cruise and RI. Damn it. Uh, hey, Reg, you got me, mate? I think your internet must have shit itself. I don't know if I'm fucking still being recorded. You got me, bro? You, you there? Uh, yeah, I, I can hear you, mate. I just can't see you. Oh, right. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> now I'm sitting here going, oh, is the podcast just going to be me sitting here going, Ooh. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, mate. The, the last last thing I heard, the whole video and not paused. The, the last thing I heard was um, uh, the two div two star general uh, Kelly. I think you were saying he as walked at some point. Oh, so you know, no. So the RSM, so two div RSM, who obviously got to travel with a fair bit as well. Um, he, I said, listen, sir, this is all you're all nice blokes and whatnot, and I understand this job's a pretty important job, but um, it's certainly not stimulating my needs uh, as a soldier and he, and he agreed he goes yep you should be doing something else so i asked to get posted to one rtb as a recruit instructor so that awesome. was a a big change for me mate and i guess the, the regimental side of things coming from artillery helped me out a lot there don't don't get me wrong mate i struggled a, a little bit in the beginning to to put that ri head on um in fact in those days mate they were the seven weekers that we were putting through um they were hectic as mate and we were working from 5 30 in the morning till eight o'clock most nights uh, for seven seven weeks straight mate like every now and then you'd you get the opportunity to to go home early if you weren't driving the, the platoon but they were probably the longest days and hardest days um i did uh, in my military career and uh yeah, not, not, not good on any families. And that sort of brings me to my next point where I said, right, I only did a year there. And I said, I'm done. And I, and I discharged. And when I say I discharged, I, I, tr I tactically transferred to uh, the reserves and did a DA50, um, which is basically a contract 
to the Army in Oki as the uh, Army Aviation Training Centre's Transport Manager. Okay. Yeah, so that that's where the, the military police thing comes in. So whilst I was there, mate, you had um, 44 MP uh, platoon, which um, fell under 4 MP company, which was out of Brisbane, which um, had our military police dogs in our uh, close pr uh, protection um, operatives. So out of those, um, I, I started to see these blokes doing dog work. I went, ooh, that looks pretty interesting. Went over there and, and had a yarn to a, a fellow called Stephen Wood, who's now, I think he's uh, the ops woe for Charlie Company in the military police at the moment, They're working out of Sydney. Um, and What's his name, him, sorry? Uh, Stephen Wood. Steve Wood, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, good good guy and a bloke who I still con I talk to regularly. Um, and he sort of said, uh, he, he was a... He was a corporal at the time, um, and he told me all about the job, and I said, I want to do that. And that's when I just started the transition. Um, I, I put my transfer back into the regular army and pretty much got a, picked up straight away and sent down to Sydney to do my basic military police course. Yeah, nice, dude. Yeah. Nice. So, so tell me about – yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go, mate. I was going to say, tell me about the, um, the the training to get into the MPs. Like, what's the role of the MPs at that time? Yeah, okay, that's a very good question, mate, because it has changed, uh, and it's, it's changed significantly to what it used to be. Um, the basic training, not so much, because we've got to give everyone a, a complete holistic understanding of what they potentially will be doing when they leave um, basic course, and it's now tri-service. So you've got your, your roughies and... and um, and Navy people in there as well. So, uh, as, sorry, the, so that's a like a, all of the military police from Army, Navy, Air Force? Correct, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, gotcha, okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so when when I went through, it wasn't, it was just, uh, oh, sorry, no, it was, we did have our tri-service in at the time. Um, but it, it was, at that time, we weren't working together, we just went out to our separate ways because that's what's called the, the Defence uh, School of Military Policing rather than the Army School of Military Policing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, mate, I'll, I'll tell you what, it was tough, I, I guess. And the reason why it was tough is a, a lot of the people I was with there at the time as trainees were very, very new to the army. Um, and, um, being a full track already and, um, and a little bit of an understanding of what the, the broader, a little bit better understanding of what the broader army was like, it was a bit of a tough transition to come down to that IET level. And, um, and play that, that IET game. Uh, so I, I did struggle for the first, well, probably month or six weeks, and I'm going, oh, what have I done here? Um, I don't know if I want to play this game. But as I started to go through, especially once we met the field, field component, component of the military policing, that's when it got a lot more comfortable for me and where I started to do a lot, a lot better rather than the, all the actual policing, the investigations and all those sort of things. Um, because I think at that time, it's longer now, it was a three-month course. So quite a long time, mate, and, um, to be in Holsworthy down in Sydney to be doing that kind of stuff. And I guess that cultural shift of, into that tri-service environment as well was, was interesting. Um, and having that, that, I guess, sprinkle of different corps there. I mean, we artillery, infantry, a lot of um, clerks, armoured, Lots of, lots of guys there from different corps, which made it great because we all had our strength to bring into that, I guess, all-core environment, which military police is, is um, having that ability to 
yes, go write a statement. Yes, go take an investigation. Yes, now you've got to go field and bang in 100 star pickets, which we don't do anymore, thankfully. I'm oh, sorry. Which they, um, but, yeah, there's a, a lot of different, um, different things. But, mate, by the end of the course, um, yeah, I was pretty comfortable being an MP and um, then moved into um, Townsville, into Alpha Company. Um, in my head, mate, my pure my pure focus was to get this GD stuff out of the way and get into the dogs. And every, and I made that very evident to anyone I spoke to to ensure that no one ever had any doubt that that's where I wanted to go uh, on, on a daily basis. <laughs> so it's because uh, sometimes, mate, as as you probably know, is when you're in a unit that's struggling manning wise or struggling to get things done with the people they got, they don't want to they don't want to let go of people, especially if you're someone who's um, not a slacko and, and you're going to do the work and um, I experienced that in Townsville mate to the point where they said oh listen mate we don't want to put you on the list for the dog course because you'll, you'll probably go and I said yep that's my intent <laughs> so it was it was a bit tough um, to to sort of convince them I said listen I'm happy doing the MP stuff but my full intent is to go to dogs and I would really like that and um, yeah uh, yeah in 2008, I think it was. So I was very, very short into my time. Was it 2008? Yeah, early 2008, I went and did my dog course down at, down at Sydney again. Yeah. So just backing up a little bit, when you were doing like your regular MP time and you're up in, because you're, were you in Laverack? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, so you're in Laverack Barracks, Townsville. Um, now that that's a time when there's a lot of uh, a lot of deployments happening. You've got the SecDet in Iraq. You've got some yeah. of the RTF yeah. in the early days, um, and that was probably some of the most intense stuff that Aussies had done in a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, as an MP, are you dealing with a lot of the fallout from some of those deployments and the jadedness and the people discharging and the you know post deployment? fucking wobbles that people get on what's what's the go there how's that that's a, that's a good question that's a good question mate so there's two parts to that to that answer mate so that the hardest part for me at that time because like you're saying you had the omelets going over your sec debts and all, all the thing that was happening at the time and mate i was literally instructing every single one of them on how to use a pistol and how to do um what we call our dt's defensive tactics and, and basically a a, a a digger level of LOAC in that regard. So it was frustrating for a bloke like myself and, and the other blokes that were providing that sort of specialist knowledge to everybody that was getting deployed because, hey, we would really like to go, please. Uh, but you never got to go. But at the same time, mate, what was happening at that time when, because that's when we converted, oh, sorry, we went, oh, what, what happened then? That's when we actually became the battalion, I believe. And someone will definitely correct me if I'm wrong if, when they hear this podcast. Um, but it, we were providing a, a general duty policing on the beat with the coppers out in, um, in in Townsville as well, which was actually quite good, mate. And I, I don't know, I guess, because at that time I didn't think of things the way that you're saying it now, but maybe that was a, a reason. But Friday and Saturday nights, mate, they were pretty exciting. And we got to get hands-on a fair bit. And, um, and, and I guess... A bloke, as a bloke I used to work with a lot was a fellow called Alan Napier. He's uh, he was an MP, also a dog handler. He actually did some time as a DLO for about two years over with uh, SASR. 
you know, him and I, mate, we, for whatever reason, whether we did it on purpose, we'd always end up on patrol together. Um, but we, we yeah, you, the, the option we gave people said, listen, you just jump in the back of the paddy wagon, mate, I'll take you home. That's the end of it. I don't, I won't, see, won't need to speak to your RSM, won't speak to, need to speak to your duty officer, I'll take you home. But because, unfortunately, the, the reputation some military police had at the time and still have is um, they didn't trust us. And, uh, and sometimes they ended up a, a arrested or whatnot, and we'd have to go through that, um, that what I found, pretty yucky side of the business was um, that, that discipline rather than that supporting it. And, I mean, again, going down that philosophical line again, it was our, our core motto was for the troops, with the troops, and, and certainly not against them. And um, that's what... I kept in my head. I was like, I'm here to help these guys, not 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 bloody put them in in the in the cells or whatever it was in two hour at the time. It was to get these guys home and and um, in a safe place and not given the coppers because that was the option. I said because most because we were working side by side with the coppers. They go, hey mate, if you don't pick him up, we're going to put him in in the the watch house for the night. So we're doing him two favors: getting him off the street, two getting him out of the watch house, and going through that military system. And it was good for the coppers to, to, to help us out like that. And, to, and mate, it's a bit of a tough because they're like the real police and we're, we're, we're not. And you're going, all right. They made us feel like part of the team. And I remember the first time I went out there with the guys, he said, right, mate, if you're out here with us, you're one of us. If we're getting a scrap, we expect you to be in it with us. I said, all right, too easy. You just need to ask me and I'll jump in. <laughs> so we had some pretty good times <laughs> <Yeah>. on there. <laughs> That's right. But... um. Yeah, I, I don't know, mate. If I, if I was to give one example of a bloke who was probably uh, displaying some of the characteristics which you sort of said is a fellow that we picked up for possession of, of drugs. And um, he basically, he'd come back from deployment, been wanting to get out, gone a little bit um, funny in the head and uh, he literally flagged our car down and um, he goes, come and have a look in my room. I've got something to show you drug paraphernalia and stuff in his room and he goes, yep, and I'm high as 10 high things. I really need to get out of the army, mate. Can you take me in? So that's probably the example of that. Shit. And, and wow. more in the car, he was he was explaining, he goes, listen, I've been trying to get out of the army for so long. I've, uh, I just got back from, uh, I, can't believe, I can't remember whether it was Iraq or wherever it was, and I said, hey, listen, mate, um, we'll do everything that we can. And, and as you know, I mean, we're not there to bust their balls, mate. Honestly, that's that might be some people's agenda. I just want to get that guy into a safe position, and we all make mistakes, mate. I've made plenty. Uh, I don't need someone bloke in the car reminding me of those mistakes. So we just sort of did. I did my best to look after those guys. Yeah, yeah. That must be an interesting thing for you to balance in the MPs because you've got that reputation and you obviously know the saying, right? The, the MP, uh, uh, what's the emblem, so to speak, the, the core emblem? Yeah, the is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, the two it's, swords, right? And the yeah. saying is one sword to fight the enemy, one sword to stab you in the back with, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's that like, mate, being probably a half-decent bloke in the MPs and then having to deal with that sort of reputation and then... Because you, you're probably on the back foot as soon as you start interacting with people, right? Yeah, you're, you're right, mate. And, and that's been a problem throughout my whole career. I mean, right to the very end, mate. But it, it, it's always going to be that barrier that you have to sort of break down. And, and that's something I, I certainly pass on to my diggers as well. I said, hey, you, the biggest problem we have is our patch. I said, but at the same time, I'm proud to wear that patch. 
Um, but we need to show we need to show these people why we are proud to wear that patch, not because we're going to put people away or whatever that, and we'll stab them in the back and all those sort of things that come up. And so to manage that, mate, and I'll, I'll use an example, and this is probably going to go against me, um, but I'm happy to share it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, after my military police dog, Here we course, go. mate. <laughs> so I, I was, I was. Um, I was lucky enough two weeks after I finished my dog course to get deployed to East Timor straight away. Um, awesome. And that, yeah, so I was stoked. And um, so myself and military police dog, Amy, uh, who I was allocated on the course, um, for her, it was her second tour. Uh, for me, it was my second tour, but first tour as a dog, a dog handler. And um, so straight away, mate, I was attached to 5RIRT LBG5, um, part of support company there. Um, it, it was... At the end of we and I guess what the the irregular thing at the time was well was it was four corporals. We didn't have a sergeant, which normally the sergeant's the session commander, um, because I think there was the intent to draw down and reduce our footprint in, in on the uh, in East Timor, and that subsequently happened uh, the next tour after. But in that time, mate, I guess I got to um, work very closely with the infantry, and the big thing for us was to literally just get in their face and say, hey. When are you going on patrol? Show me your patrol plan um, or your schedule for the week and we'll pick where, or not pick, see where we can fit in to your patrol plan. And we looked after um, Dilly, um, Glenno up in the hills um, and Bacow over on the eastern side. So for me personally, Glenno and Bacow were my favourite because the cooks there were fantastic um, and it was a lot cooler in those locations. But... Straight away, mate, having the big old school red patch we had back then, that was the barrier put up. You get in the back of the carrier uh, or back in um, what are those bloody New Zealand six-wheel drive things or eight-wheel drives, whatever they were bloody called. Get in the back of one of those. Oh, is, yeah, straight, straight away, they're sort of, you're on the, no one wants to talk to you or they ask you the standard MP questions like uh, how many blokes you locked up, to, did you bring your speed gun, that <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so, but yeah, and my my dog, unfortunately, was extremely racist and didn't like anyone that had darker skin. Or um, So that sometimes worked against me working with the New Zealanders because um, the Maori population, she would cook off as soon as they got in the, in the car. Um, but yeah, it was, over, I'll tell you what broke that barrier and this is what's probably going to get some remarks is um we went out and we were up in Bacow. we just finished a big trip of basically doing some um i guess some standing patrols out in the bush with the with the guys and um uh, for i think it was about two weeks we went from dilly up to Glenno, um through to the cow and just doing that standing patrols uh, so on as no nothing more than two days but if you've been to Timor, the, the country there is quite steep and quite hot and quite wet. Um, but we got to Bacow and we all decided, oh no, let's go have a beer. And um, a, a, as you know, uh, that's naughty. <laughs> so we, um, the, the, we basically went to a restaurant there and we had a meal and two beers with our, uh, our meal. And um, subsequently the OC or the person, or sorry, one of the blokes that was sitting at another table um, was a civilian journalist and he went back to our FOB up in Bukau uh, and, t- and told our, told the OC there. So by the time we got back, it, yeah, exactly right, mate. And I know why he did that because he was giving some two young ladies a bit of grief 
and they were over there in schoolies, but they were there as part of a mission. And uh, we sort of identified this fellow as a bit of a predator, and um, as a result, gave him a bit of a, a little bit of heckling, and he moved moved along. I think he obviously took that. What's, he, what's his name? Oh, I don't know, mate. And that's a hard, that's a, that sort of gets to the next part of my story. He, he made this allegation, which is true, mate. And um, we, being the people we were up, yep, we did that. Let's, we'll take the kick in the ass. And um, we then became, I guess, very known in the whole battle group then as the four MPs that got on the piss. <laughs> so, um, uh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, but what happened then, mate, is that barrier broke down. We, were, we, were, we became part of the team. The, we, the, the guys felt more comfortable. I certainly learnt a lesson. I'm not going to do that to make mates with people, but that, that, that brought down that, that division between us being military police and then infantry. They understood, yes, we still got a core, a core foundation to police the troops per se, but like we, I used to remind them, that is not my function right now. My function here is to provide you a force multiplier in the shape of a military police dog. If required, military police advice on the ground. Um, so once we got past that little indiscretion, yeah, we got charged. I think we got two days loss of pay. But in the long run, it was kind of worth it uh, to have to break down those barriers of relationship between the infantry and us. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't have seen you as these narcs. They're like, oh, these guys, we're out slaying bulk piss. Like <laughs> we would have been or should have been or yeah, what to yeah. do or... Yeah. So, it, so what yeah. It, 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 what was the actual mission for you guys with the dogs? Were you like, was it a tracking mission? Was it apprehension? Was it just force protection? All, what was the go? All of above, mate. So whatever whatever fell into that box. And, and if I was to be one hundred percent honest, mate, that was two thousand eight. Um, so being part of a patrol in two thousand eight in Dili, to me, as a bloke I was at the time, and, and probably similar to who I am now. I thought we were just delaying that transition of normality for those people. Watching blokes walk around with um, a 58, a Minamai and, and um, styres with a big furry chainsaw down the street just didn't suit the picture, if you know what I mean. It, we were, yeah. These guys, in my opinion, were getting on with their lives. Yeah, we had some minor indiscretions that were happening sort of out of Dili and most of the stuff that was happening in Dili was probably civil crime that should be dealt with by the federal police or the PNTL. Um, so I guess most of the stuff that we did at that stage, and anyone would agree with me, East Timor became our new training area. Uh, a sub one was run over there, a sub two, mate, the science course that I watched get done over there. I, I've never seen people so um, destroyed in my life when I watched them do that. Um, they ran a, uh, a carrier course over there. They It basically became a, a train. They even ran, ran a sub one for Corporal in East Timor uh, in that time. So so for us, so for us, we our, our primary focus was to provide that force multiplier in the, in the case of any public uh, disorder, um, whether it be riots or whatnot, uh, provide that tracking capability if required, um, and any sort of... Um, out of court in a court and, uh, apprehension, which we got the opportunity to do one up in, oh, I can't remember the place, but it was up in the jungle somewhere. It was probably one of the most amusing missions I'd ever seen, mate, because it was supposed to be covert. And it was run by um, the Portuguese, the GNR, um, PNTL, 
Australian Federal Police with a contingent of, um, I can't remember, I think it might have been Delta Company of Bilario was sent up there as the outer cordon, while uh, I think GNR with the strike team. And, mate, uh, if you can think about that, that many agencies doing one mission, one mission to catch three murderers in a little village in the middle of the jungle, um, I would have a guess we're about 30 vehicles strong. Um, driving a convoy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> up into the into the jungle, um, and we just they literally had a one of the federal police officers had to actually become a parking attendant and put us into a big soccer oval on in this village, and so I'm sitting there in orders listening to all, what was going to go on, and the only thing I heard that was very important was no flash, no bangs, just go in there and it, it's all got to be very solid because obviously the 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 village homes over there made a bloody I know, uh, palm fronds and stuff like that. So the noise is going to travel very quickly at, at four o'clock in the morning. Sure enough, first house they went into, bang. So that resulted in, I think they got two arrests and one one escaped. Unfortunately for us, none none came our way. But um, yeah, one, one got yeah. away from that night. But that was that was probably the one and only real sort of uh, proper task we did on that whole nine months, mate. So that was a nine month tour for us. Um, which well, was, yeah, that's long, bro. Too too long, mate. <laughs> too long. But um, at the same time, mate, it, it was a good opportunity for me to know my craft, build a solid bond with my dog, because um, she was, mate, uh, she came from the New South Wales Police as not being tall enough uh, to do the job. Um, she then got subsequently given to one dog handler um, who subsequently left the military, then given to, then became the pool dog for her first tour in East Timor. Then I got her. So she's gone, I could see it on her face, who's this bloke who's gonna be pulling my lead for the next however long. And um, and she was quite an arrogant dog, if I was to, if I was to be honest. Um, but during that time in Timor, we, we certainly built a, a solid bond. And that's all I like to explain to a lot of people when I was a handler back in those days. I said, I slept beside that dog and spent more time with that dog than my wife and family. I said, that's the, that's, that's the difference between a lot of people and when they talk about their pets. I said, uh, I spend way more time with my work dog than I would a pet. So it's, um, yeah, interesting times, mate. But um, yeah, I, if, I think the best task I did over there, again, was a training task. This is with uh, Bovara Recon. They were running a sniper course and we had to track the snipers down. So it was basically escape and evade. Um, cool. So that was basically based off a shot rep um, in a little, uh, I can't remember the name of the bridge, but there was a bridge outside of uh, Gleno. We had to go find source scent. So we didn't know where they lay, but we, um, from doing a, um, an intruder A or an area search, we were able to locate where we could see where they'd laid during that time and then a subsequent track. That was the longest track I did, mate. It was raining. It's in the jungle, very steep terrain. And um, it was funny, mate. The first turn was down a big buddy gully into a creek. And, uh, and so I got the recon guys with me and going, please be right, dog. I don't want to go down here and go back up. And sure enough, mate, we get down and she's like, nah, I've made a mistake. <laughs> so we had to climb back up the <laughs> gully. <laughs> so, and I had to recast her back up the top. And um, lucky enough, one of the blokes who was on the recon team at the time, he'd done his um, trackers course. So he was able to sort of sit off to the side and confirm odour. Um, 
So and, and every now and then, because it was raining and muddy ground, I could see for myself that we were following footprints in some of the time. But as you start to go into some of the other, I guess, some rice paddies and jungle area, it got a lot tougher to see that sign. So the dog, she did fantastic, mate. I think it was a 2.3-kilometre track through that area. And, sure. and the lucky and the cheeky bastards, mate, we could see where they got to the road. Um, you can see all their footprints, and then no footprints. They got in a taxi. <laughs> yeah but that that was probably the highlight for that whole trip if i was to say mate it was the actually just the the training side of things and um and just getting it out and and uh educating the infantry that who we who we were and what we do yeah nice man and that's so nine month tour it, was there any other operational incidents that you had or was it just a fair bit of patrolling and maybe yeah. I don't know, a couple of barks of some locals. Yeah, so yeah, that's basically it, mate. So we did two. Like I, I always chose the early morning or late night patrols because I had a long-haired black sable shepherd. So operating yeah. daily during the day would just be silly, mate. I, I think Christmas Day, two thousand and eight, or Christmas night. Sorry, we're at Bacow, not Bacora Bridge, just outside of Dilly. I had to call in. Uh, like a medi back to get her back because I thought she was going to go down with heat, and that that's the only time that she's done that. The tour before me, she actually did go down with heat, and they had to put up a put a bag in her ass. And when I said they had to literally put a camel back up a backside because they couldn't get any veins, we've subsequently learned a lot more on how to do those things properly now. But back in the days, mate, back in those days, we kind of made shit up, if I was to be honest. Um, and whatever worked, worked, and we get the advice that we could and the people that are around us. But as for anything yeah. that happened, this is what I say to people when we go on exercise, when they go, oh, nothing's happening. I said, yep, it's just like operations. <laughs> so just get used to patrolling and nothing happening. Uh, so then, and, and be thankful for it sometimes. But um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's almost like you have to train for that complacency and those long periods of boredom, right? Yeah, exactly, mate. Exactly right. Because, I mean, like we were doing on average between – five and eight kilometre patrols two times a day, then it's just more of a, they're always KLEs or sort of uh, a presence patrol if we heard any of the uh, the martial arts gangs kicking off in the city or whatever, we'd go and show them with a the dog. It just reminded me of a story. Day one, mate, I got in the back of a carrier. And uh, at, so I'll remind you that my dog is very racist and certainly knew what the targets were in, in town. I got out of the yep. back of the cat, so we, as you know, so we're normally last in, first out for the dogs. I'm sitting there at the back of the carrier. We stopped into our drop-off location with the patrol, and I've hopped out with the dog. And no shit, mate. Within I know two or three seconds, she's lashed onto a bloke's ass um, who's riding past on a bike. Uh, so she's just I've sort of had to rip her off. Go no, corrected her, and old matey's just taken off into the bush. And I'm going, I really got to check if he's all right <laughs> i never saw him again mate. <laughs> but that was sort of like it was good for the grunts to see that because they're going oh she means business so, yeah that's not what i'm serious yeah but reg yeah. you got your first operational bite mate don't <laughs> exactly literally first patrol <laughs> so it was it was yeah it was good fun mate it was um i mean in, i think we were the second last rotation uh the rotation after us there was only two handlers and I think they only lasted three months in country before they shut down the cat, the dogs in there. Yeah, okay. 
And was that just a, like a natural part of the drawdown for that particular mission? And they were just like you were saying, it was like, yeah, people just getting back to their lives. Yeah, yeah. Dogs are a bit high level. Draw them yeah. back. Yeah. 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 I mean, because, I mean, you look at dogs, mate, they're definitely, they are definitely a show of force. Yeah, very intimidating. And if, yeah, I guess it sort of potentially raises that uh, alertness level of the locals and whatnot. Yeah, oh, mate, and they're, they're scared stiff of dogs over there. And that's mainly because of all the tours prior to, especially through, during Interfet and such like that. Those dogs, they'd cause some damage in those riots and stuff like that. I mean, one of, one of our Terps, um, he showed me his scars on his leg and his arm from, um, I can't remember the dog's name now, but the dog handler. Uh, was Whoppy. Um, he's now a Queensland Police detective. Um, he's uh, yeah, his dog caused a lot of damage over there, just pushing those those guys back away from in those those uh, right situations. But yeah, so the the Australian military police dog developed quite a um, reputation over there. Yeah, nice man, mate. Did you ever work with uh, the Perth guys with SASR over in Timor, or see them or their dogs? Um, not, not in Timor, no. So I think, you know, it might be incorrect, but at that time they didn't have their dogs there at that stage. I think early days they were using rapid dogs. I can't remember the name of the, the SAS major I was speaking to, but he, he gave me some pretty cool stories about how they utilized the dogs at that time and, and using other assets to, uh, I guess, find people. And, and I, I, as a result of those conversations, I try to push that into, our capabilities as well, and that was utilising uh, UAVs um, in addition to the dog capabilities. So UAVs, map to ground, uh, cutoffs, all those kind of things that um, kind of doesn't sit in a military policeman's head because we leave that to the grunts, I guess, to deal with and the, and the tacticians. Um, but yeah. we also need to understand how to advise and, and because a lot of the time these guys don't understand what we do. And, and if we can provide that advice to whether it be the corporal, uh, the platoon commander, on how we can effectively use these dogs using other assets to, uh, I guess, increase success. That's why we really started to bring in those. I, I certainly pushed it on my guys, right? You need to understand navigation. You need to understand map to ground. You need to understand likely avenue of escape uh, that that guy's gone so we can we can send a UAV that way. At the same time, looking, looking for um, our... our pool centre at the beginning of the track. And, and we started to do that a fair bit uh, in training uh, down the track. Um, I don't know what they do now, but we started to get some good results out of it. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah. So what's um, when, you, when you're, say it would have been 2009 with the time that trip wrapped up, yep. um, what's that like coming home from a, from a trip, albeit, you know, it wasn't, all guns blazing the whole time. What's it like coming home from a trip like that, the adjustment phase? So that, I guess, that's a good question, mate. So 2009, if I was to give a bit of context, mate, the dog unit at the time was pretty undermanned and overtasked. So getting back, it didn't take long before I was back on the tools and back out bush. Uh, so I didn't really have that much time to sort of get my bearings back. But I guess what was different for me as well, I just went from a course straight on to deployment and then back in, I had to move a house and move my family in that time because remember I was in Townsville and now I'm posted to Oki. Uh, so my wife's been basically 
I've been away from my wife that and my family, or my two daughters at that time. Oh, sorry, no, I had three. So one son, two daughters at that time. Um, so I've been away for three months on a dog course, come back for two weeks, then sent away for nine months, and then come back home. And in that time, she's moved the whole family and house down to, down to, um, in Toowoomba, Oakey area, southeast Queensland. So yeah. I had to sort of, ca- I had to catch up a fair bit on that that absence and um, provide as much support as I could uh, in in the home. And that's what I sort of, I'm sure you understand. And that's why wives and spouses in the uh, in husbands, whatever they may be, in the in the military, certainly don't get enough credit for the sacrifice they make as well as as a result of what we do. And um, so yeah, I guess I spent a bit of time fixing stuff at home, building sheds and all those kind of things. And um, I guess the big thing after that was to pass on the lessons learned to the guys back back at Oki. Yeah, awesome, man. So were you now back to full-time, right? So you were still full-time this, at this time? Yep. Yes, I yep. Yeah, awesome. And then how did your role change when you got back to the unit at Oki? Were you just like, were you a corporal at that stage? Yeah, so we were all corporals back then. Um, so until oh, yeah. recently, yeah. So until recently, where they, we bring in diggers, but um, yeah, I, I guess my role sort of I was just basically a, a shit kicker then because we were all corporals, mate. And most of the guys I was with there had done deployments to East Timor already, because uh, as I said, the small small unit, high high um, high request rate. So it was just sharing those that knowledge, sharing what I learned on that tour. Um, Consolidating a lot of that stuff I learned on that tour, um, exercises, um, courses, all those kind of things, and we used to support RMC a lot in regards to their um, their officer courses out in the bush. Most of the time was up in White Bay, so we did a lot of those, and that was our opportunity to develop and I guess imprint our capability to future leaders, and not just in the, the dog side, but military police side, and, and hopefully poach some good future leaders out of there to come across to the call. Um, but yeah, I guess that was a bit of a really busy time for me professionally in just getting my getting my craft right. Um, what I do over that time as well, 2009. So I think we had the service dog seminar that year as well, um, which that was the first time I got to go play with all the other agencies. Where it was Queensland Police, uh, the Raffies. We had Mark Donaldson come over uh, and give us a bit of a spiel as well um, at the time. Uh, who else we got? So we all came in there and it was... Was this... Of, sorry? Yep. So when Dono came over, Mark Donaldson... Um, yep. Was he a Victoria Cross recipient at that time, or was he just a handler with the Perth guys? So he was a handler, but he's obviously had his VC at the time, so it was a pretty, pretty um, big deal for him to be turning up and gave us a big spiel on that. Um, it was a big deal for me, mate, because I just literally finished my sub one for sergeant, and he was my um, topic to bring up to discuss during my sub one. So I just researched this guy. <laughs> Which was very difficult because at that time he his past was quite, um, I guess, a mystery. Um, and I mean, since his book's been released after that, which would have been really helpful for my sub sub one for sergeant, it, it's um, <laughs> it's all it's all become quite apparent. Uh, but that, that was a I guess a bit of a a high point in my career, mate, to meet him and have a yarn. And and if you've met him, mate, he's he's a super cool dude, just quite relaxed. So it was um, that was good in itself. And um, 
but what was great about that opportunity, mate, was for us as a military police dog capability, you know, when you're doing something, you, I know, I mean, you you guys get to play with a lot of different agencies. When you're the MPs, we don't. And we just sort of think we're doing what we're doing is right. And we had the opportunity to go and play with others and see what they're doing. And it was really, really good for us to see that we were doing the right thing. We, yeah, the capability we're providing, providing the techniques we were using and the, I guess, the capability what we wanted at the end was equal to, if not better than some of the agencies that were out there. Yeah, nice. So a bit of a bit of an exercise in validation to see that you're still doing things okay by the rest of the community. Yeah, that's right. And that sort of brings me back to Aaron Barnett, who was, uh, well, what was he, the CSM then? It might have been the SSM at the time. I mean, that guy sort of changed the way that we did um, dog training and our capability because up until that time, we basically did the RAF course. Um, oh, sorry, up until the time, probably two courses before me, we would did the RAF course. We all did it together and we MPs would go do the MP things and, and RAFIs would go do the RAFI thing. That, that, that circle has gone a full circle again. We now do a, a, a dual service course again. Uh, but there's an army single service component at the end that goes for five weeks. But he completely broke the mould of the old compulsion um, yank and crank sort of um, methodology to our uh, our negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, classical and operant conditioning side of things that we're doing. And, and he'd done that purely. He, I guess his big influences was dog sport and um, Michael Ellis was a big one for him as well. And subsequently we spent... I uh, love Michael went... Ellis. Oh, exactly. The guy's a legend. And um, so subsequently... I want to get him on this podcast. <laughs> oh, mate, that would be sick because he's just... Um, he's a good dude. And it, we watched so many of his videos and Ed Pauly from Ray Allen and stuff like that. I mean, these are all... I mean, that was... I can't remember. 2008, mate. So that was a long time ago. Things are developed massively as you know in, in in this arena but uh yeah it was good to see um that those methodologies that he was teaching us outside of what we had as doctrine at the time were certainly um oh, i'd sound a little bit arrogant but they were they showed a better result at the end a, a better demeanor in the dogs the dogs weren't um, waiting for the next correction or being forced to do things the dogs wanted to do things yeah, that's, that's a good segue, actually, because I did want to ask about the methods and how they changed over time. Because yeah. um, like I had Ben Gertz on this podcast and we spoke a bit about, um, actually, I'm wearing the West Australia Police Dog Squad yep. Yep. Uh, T-shirt. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> he was obviously over there. So he and I had a bit of a brief chat about that, how the methods changed over time from that real compulsive sort of method from... Uh, you know, into like the Nipopo stuff and the e-collars and, and a bit more food-based and whatnot. Is that similar to what happened? I mean, obviously, you know, your mate Barnett has taken things in that direction. Yep. Were you guys Nipopo focused or was it just more like, hey, this is a clicker and some food, maybe there's a different way? Yeah, okay. So we've probably moved towards Nipopo only probably the last two or three years. Um, sorry, that's as a lie because I've been out of the army for two and a half years. So prior to that, probably the last five years, we moved more towards that. Um, but a again, mate, it's the transition wasn't a, I guess, a hard and fast transition. It was sort of gradual, and that that knowledge and um, expertise in that area just started to evolve and, and um, become how we did things over time. And, and that'll 
I'll talk a little bit more how we formalise that uh, later on in my, so probably closer to the end of my career. But we we um there became I mean it's probably similar in, in your arena. There's guys within the organisation that are the custodians of knowledge and also the ones that have the drive and the motivation to share and to push it uh, to the point of it becomes the way we do things. And Barney was, Barney was one of those. Um, and, and it certainly, he spread that into people like myself and, and others down the track as well. Um, so yes, at that time, mate, I didn't, yeah, we got taught formally because we had to go through doctrine on how to compel dogs to do things, to use that language. But we were also given a, a number of other ways to train dogs, and, and that's going down that um, that classical and operant conditioning side of things. And we didn't use clickers; we just used the, the yes. Um, we were told about clickers, but we never yep. used them. Um, and that sort of progressed later on down the down the down the road. But um, I, I, if I was to say when it became a thing, um, I, I don't know. There was a, a a hard and fast date. It, it might have been. In line with, I think it was 2017. No, not 2017. Might have been much earlier than that. When we when we it came in line when we transitioned into the RAF course, and there was a bit of argy bargy between some old heads back then, and Barney being one of them, trying to enforce that that um, classical and operant conditioning modelling into the RAF program, um, which was still pretty um, hard and fast um, com compulsion. But at the end, again, the RAF had similar um, motivated people who wanted to bring that new way of training. Um, I, I had the uh, the um, I guess the, the the luxury, not the luxury, the the pleasure of instructing on one RAF course, which was great, and it was good to see that cross pollination of uh, I guess what was two silos being forced to come together. I mean, I don't believe it was a, a, um, a I guess a nicely agreed. Um, togetherness, but it, it, it certainly has evolved to that point where we've got um, one person down there as part of the development team who comes in and, and instructs on the courses when they come through. But um, the formalisation, and I'll get to that point now, is of we needed to make it doctrine. And Army military police dogs at the time had no doctrine. Um, so 2000, and, and I'm jumping ahead in time a bit here, 2018, I think it was, might have been 19, um, Moros uh, uh, Squizzy Taylor, um, Aaron Barnett, um, myself, Christopher again. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the engineer, Warren Officer, and that's embarrassing, but he's a really good dude. He was a capability manager for engineers at the time. We came together to create doctrine. Warren Officer Wood, um, he was basically the facilitator of it and the bloke who had to do all the typing, and he, being an experienced guy, had a, had a hell of a lot to offer as well. Um, so we, in that time, created doctrine, and that was not just our training doctrine, because we still had to fall back into the TMP, which is the RAF, but it gave us our, I guess, our consolidation doctrine, and our, and not just that, our what we provide, our capability doctrine, uh, because it, it just wasn't there. Um, and a lot of that influence came from units like Two Commando, SASR, our other interactions with um, policing agencies. We, we, we broke the mould of what, this is what military do. We go, well, this is what everybody, we took the good things out of what everybody does and we put it in a book and made it basically fall in line with, uh, I guess, current operations and future operations. And I think what we spoke about 
in the past was we wanted to train to uh, that a war the war analogy came to places where we need to get these guys out of thinking we're going to train for afghanistan all the time because there's a big push not a push murmurs about removing the tracking capability and, and I guess I, I sound like a bit of an old head here and, and the old heads that may listen to this in the future would agree where that is the one thing that makes us different to a lot of other agencies is that tracking capability and no one else can provide that 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 level of tracking that we aim to provide. Yeah, okay. It sounds like a bit of a common... Uh, a common sort of thread in that period, moving from that compulsive, those compulsive methods to food and clickers and whatnot. Yep. Um, and I, so for example, when I went through my course, my formal education was like the NEPOPO system, right? So it was all clickers, um, layering in e-collars, some very light, not, uh, light compulsive negative reinforcement with like slip leads and that type of stuff. Yep. Um, did you, train with guys like SASR and Two Commando or were you just sort of um, no, took no, some I of got... their doctrine and some of their course content? No, it's funny, mate. They actually stole from us sometimes, which was interesting. Uh, but I got to I got to go over SASR and um, for one of their courses. That was in 2015. Um, and I'll be honest, for me, mate, that was a fantastic opportunity for me. And... Um, I learned so much in that three months that I was there outside of what I knew and it certainly adjusted the way that I think and that I train and now that I train others as well. Um, the, the lead hand at the time was an absolute weapon and just um, he he was a master of his craft and he loved it. And so it was good to deal with a bloke like that. I think Gertie was there at the time as well. Um, so it was... So I got to see that firsthand, partake about it. And as you know, mate, us MPs as DLOs, we got beaten up for two and a bit months um, doing muzzle cereals and such. But, um, yeah, it, it was a great opportunity. And, and, and post that opportunity over there, coming back, I, I, having a DLO down in two command at the time called Chris Gen, again, a knowledgeable guy and, and a good man, he I sort of tried to create that's, that That's knowledge. Say again? I said that that's when I was down in the cell, and Genny oh. was Genny put me through my course. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, well that's because I, I became pretty good mates with um, Mick Davison then as well. So he's oh um, yeah 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 Mick da- yeah yeah. So he's he's end up Davo's going to end up coming up to visit um, on at one time, and um, again he had um, Gooch, who uh, to date mate is probably one of the best dogs I've ever worked in. Certainly a nasty bite. Um, he and we got to do a lot. It's sort of cross pollinate what two commando were doing at the time with what we were doing, and 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 that sort of I guess consolidated a lot of that content that I got to partake in with um, uh, the SASR. So we then sort of I think Kieran I can't remember Kieran's last name. He came up at a later date and did some work with us as well. Um, so we started to establish those. I'll probably blank through. that one out. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I think I think oh, he's still serving. Okay, all right, yep, all right. So, yeah, I think he was still, uh, he came up, um, did some work with us. Um, that was good. Um, who else? Um, yeah, it was just good to have that, I guess, the ability to talk to them and, and uh, re-establish, oh, sorry, not just re-establish, sort of rambling a bit now. 
because at that time, mate, we were, and this is like, we were sending a lot of people to these agencies, uh, sorry, to, to SASR and to Commando, and not much was coming back, especially people. A lot of the people were discharging as a result or not. So we kind of said, hey, we'd really like you to come and, you know, come and play with us for a bit as well and, and, and to share back. And, and Davo was fantastic in that regard, mate. He, he loved it. So it was good to have that come up. And, and the, the leading hand over at SASR at the time as well, um, he did that as well. He came over on two occasions, ran a full exercise for us there uh, for about four days down in Brisbane. So it was good to get that, which we never had before. Yeah, nice, man. Yeah. Awesome. And did you did you take that Nipopo style of training or did you just sort of adapted it to what you guys were doing? Yeah, so we sent a few guys on the Nipopo course um, and that subsequently happened as a result of people being posted down to the, the, the 2SF um, locations. But then we started to send uh, people ourselves. And, and as you know, mate, Nipopo is a different language in itself. And we had to sort of, I remember um, Scott Parsons, really good man and a guy that I sort of took under my wing for quite some time up in Darwin and subsequently went down to, to Commando to help out. Um, it's now left there. Um, but I remember him coming back and trying to do a bit of stuff with uh, Maka, uh, his dog at the time, Nepo Po-wise. And, and I, the analogy I gave him, and, um, and he eventually came around to it. And, and at that stage, mate, my knowledge of Nepo Po was quite poor. I mean, he knew a lot more than I did. Um, but I just said, right, mate, you've been speaking English to this dog for however many years. Remember, this dog is six years old. And now you're, you're speaking Chinese and you want him to learn the first day. Right? And that's gonna, you're going to have to, you're going to risk that dog shutting down. As you know, with a big, he was a big male, mate, very highly strong and very capable. But males normally go one of two ways. If you put too much pressure on them, they, they're going to fall over or come up the lead. I said, I don't, I don't want to see any of those things come out of this dog. And um, so, the, the next bloke after him that did the Nepo Po was um, Foxy, and, and you know Foxy. He's now with Queensland Police. Um, big shout-out to Foxy, mate. Sorry? I said big shout-out to Foxy. He's a fan yeah. of the show. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy, and um, it's certainly another one of those guys I sort of took under my wing and sort of helped me a lot uh, in the Army and outside the Army with, with dogs. So, he's um, yeah, I think he deserves a shout-out, mate. He's definitely... Definitely a good guy, but he done that and he brought a lot of that back to the unit. And um, yeah, so has it been embedded in the military police at the time I was there? I, I don't think it was embedded per se. It was just another tool in the toolbox. And that's, a, I guess, the analogy I certainly love to use. Yep, that's cool. But there's not just one way to train a dog, which I think a lot of people you know, um, sort of get caught in that trap sometimes. This is how we do it. Okay, it's not working for that dog. Let's let's do this. And I use the analogy with the old people. My dog doesn't like tennis balls. Okay, what does it like? Let's use that instead. It's um. It, it, so it was good to the, the last couple of years having the people like Mike Subtle come over, which I had the opportunity to go see. Um, awesome. Yeah, he was fantastic, mate. And, and to see some of the again, I'm gonna sort of reverse a little bit as what we were saying about validating training. It was a good opportunity for me watching Mike Subtle do a lot of the stuff that we were already doing. And don't get me wrong, he did some cool stuff that we had no idea about. And we said, oh, we need to start doing this. But it was good to validate some of the training mechanisms we already had in place. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're sort of 
I don't know what they're doing now in regards to the popo um, within the military police dog capability, but it wasn't quite embedded when I left. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think yeah. I think a lot of units have moved to that Nipopo style of training. Um, yeah, but I think most of the most of the resistance comes from the use of the e-collar, um, partly legislatively, partly because um, it's, unless it's explained properly and the outcome is demonstrated to them, I think they're really hesitant to jump on board with the e-collar. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, and yeah. I think the best example I've seen so far is outside of SF was West Australia Police. So I was over there like a few months ago, um, had a, a bit of a dog and pony show put on for me, which is which is interesting <laughs> to, to be the guy that had the show put on for me yeah, instead of being in the show. Yeah. Um, and I say that in, in, a, in a positive way. I was very no, honoured to have something yeah. like that. But um, anyway, so Gertie was over there. He was running their capability and he introduced the e-collar and the way that they run it is was fucking phenomenal. Mm. Um, but I think they they gave up all the all the normal sort of resistance points, right? Is it ethical? Does it work? Is the public going to fucking like it? Do we just fry the dog? Is that how it works, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why people resist that Nipopo system. Yeah, agreed, mate. And I've seen that everywhere. I've had similar conversations with the Northern Territory Police and Corrections and and um, without going into too much detail, some of these e-calls are still treated like a, almost a weapon, mate. They're, they're locked in a box, locked into a safe and all these sort of things and you need to sign it in, sign it out and I go, goodness gracious. And, and, and we've had those conversations, I guess, formally and informally with um, with police officers and, and, and whatnot so, of understanding um the, the usability of these and the education piece is, is that big gap, mate, is that uh, that perception versus education. And, and I guess what I always, I mean, Aaron, I use Aaron Barnett again in his words, he said, uh, uh, you're not going to give a gorilla a, a razor blade. Uh, we just need you need to educate these people before you give these things away, these things out to use. <laughs> yes, mate, I 100% agree, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when I see guys like um, Jace Kelly and... Um, uh, like Marco O'Hare and who else is there? Um, or Ben Gertz, those kind of guys running those e-collar courses. Yep. Man, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more agencies jump on board with yeah. that style of training and I think they're getting a bit better educated. So you're right, it doesn't become a weapon. It's not just like break glass in case of emergency and fucking fry your dog. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's an activation as well as an abstinence tool. Oh, exactly right, mate. And that's getting I – mean, I had the same discussions about – Prongs. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of all these tools, mate, and, and I use all of them. But again, dog to task, dog, dog. I mean, equipment to problem, and, and people use sometimes these prongs where they shouldn't be. Sometimes people using the e-collar where they shouldn't be, and vice versa. I just, and it, again, it all falls down to that that education and, and guidance piece. And um, you know, and you know, South Australia where I am right now, mate, e-collars are really, you're not allowed to have one. Northern Territory is the same. Um, which is disappointing because you still people see people getting ripping their do dog's head off with a check chain and go, what, what, what's worse? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You may as well fucking hit it with a brick over the head, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly right, mate. So, but again, that just falls down to that education piece and, the, and I guess a little bit of um, politics involved there as well. Yeah. Do you have a particular type of e-collar that you do run or that you prefer? I like the Dogtra, mate, your dog sport, Dogtras. Um, I've also been using a Garmin, mate. The Garmin's more of a pet collar, I think I would say, rather than a training collar, but your Dogtra is the one that I use, mate, just the same as a military. 
the yeah. reason why have I you ever gone down the oh go ahead the reason why i go that way mate is it i've had one here for seven years mate and it's still going still going strong it's given me no problems it's been bashed around it's been in the water I've, i had to change the battery about a or about six months ago but that's I go how, how good is this the reliability on these things and I had to teach a lesson to a fellow that, and I learned this lesson hardly, sorry, the, the wrong way when I first started getting the e-collars and understanding that that, that that negative reinforcement piece, not so much the Nepo-Po, but that negative low stim. Um, and I bought this cheap collar, and I put it on my young dog, which is about 12 weeks at the time, mate, and I put it in its lowest setting, and that poor little girl did a flip. And, I, and it kept on going. So I, so I had to rip this dog off. I said, never buy a cheap collar again. And I had that yarn to a fellow who just came to me for a bit of advice and he bought a cheap collar. I said, sorry, mate, throw that in the bin. You've got to spend money if you're going to get an e-collar. Yeah, poor man yeah. pays twice, mate. Yeah, exactly right, mate, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know, mate. I, I, I like that purely because of its, its ruggedness and its simpleness. I've got, I've got, I mean, I've got three levels of eight and I can, I can work on that. What about Martin Systems? Have you ever used the Martin Systems one, the Chameleon? Oh, mate, I, I'd love that if I had enough money to buy one. I, I know a good friend of mine who's got <laughs> one. <laughs> they, they look fantastic. And, and mainly that contact piece, mate. You've you, you got that confidence that that's going to be touching the dogs next summer. Yeah, yeah, mate. I've got some, I'm making up some pouches um, for one of the agencies and um, I've, I've got the remotes. And it's very interesting piece of kit, man. I actually, I'm a big fan. I've never actually properly used it. I've never been educated on it. Yeah. But just some of the little features and things I see, I'm like, that looks very, very interesting, man. Especially the version two, or yeah, whatever yeah. the fucking version is. But well, there's the more versions coming. Anyway. I was talking to me, mate. He speaks to Pat Stewart a bit, and has had subsequent uh, lessons with him since he's left where he is. And um, yeah, he's telling me some of the evolution that's going to be coming towards these collars, um, trying to, I guess, dodge the um, the governance that's coming in, in especially Europe is probably the most governed area for e-collars. Um, the technology, the usability, and the, uh, I guess, the reliability is only going to get better. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think they're part of the, the sort of, some of the functions I was being, I was having explained to me were like about how they can shut off the stem and, yeah, you know, you've got to, with the computer program that it is legal in wherever you transit yeah. through and then you turn it back on yeah. and it was it was interesting man the way that it was described yeah 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 i, I, hey, I think mate, had the same sort of stuff explained to me and i said oh, well that sounds bloody good mate talk me through um talk me through how your military career came to an end what was the sort of transitional period in there what were the sort of things that were pushing you toward leaving okay i, I guess well, if you don't mind, I'll explain first what made it so good, and then yeah, how, how that how that affected my exit, I guess. Um, and I and I'll explain to that point of uh, I guess the creation and the development of the, the Bravo Company Military Police Dog Element up in Darwin, um, and that was basically post coming back from Afghanistan, um, where I deployed as uh, International Military Police Supervisor, which I was deployed with, uh, with the Danes. That was an awesome trip. Let's go back. Let's go back to that. Sorry, mate. I want to. I want to hit. I didn't realise you you'd done that. Let's fucking hit that first. <laughs> uh, okay. No. All good, mate. So I went over there um, as uh, 
an IMP supervisor, which I was attached, or sorry, yeah, attached with the Danish. So I had a Danish deputy chief and a Danish chief. Um, it basically fell under a NATO command rather than um, the Australian command there, which came with its benefits and, and also its downfalls. But um, that was a six-month tour I did in 2016 uh, at HCOA. Um, and probably the first... Sorry, definitely the first time I've done operational military policing in the capacity of being a GDMP. Um, noting the majority of the majority of the rest of my career, mate, has been as a dog handler. So, if not all, so my. But I, I guess what strengths I have at that time was being a sector commander, having an understanding of leadership and having an understanding of management. So, using those tools and the, I guess the, the the MRE, I guess we could call it prior to going of what to expect certainly helped me out. Um, but I, I got to, the good thing about that, we had a lot of influence in the team that I got to take over, which was four Australians. Um, and they made that trip a lot more a lot more enjoyable as a result. And the Danish guys we had, um, fantastic and extremely competent professional people. Um, so that, that was good. Um, mate, day one, or sorry, week one, um, which was a pretty big deal for me at the time, turned into a be a nothing, but was basically, um, right, Reg, you're in control. Um, the police station's now yours. So I guess the, the structure at the time was there was the Australian um, uh, supervisor and then there was a Danish supervisor, and we just basically shipped on, shipped off. Um, and uh, they said, oh, there's a potential or alleged IED um, on base. I went, okay, cool. So we've gone in to set the cordon and to do all that sort of stuff. And I go into to see the um, EOD blokes who were Turkish because it was a Turkish-run base. And I said, all right, who's running the show? They go, you. I went, oh, I'm in <laughs> This is interesting. I've got a corporal and I've got a bunch of officers and sergeants that I'm telling them what to do. Uh, when I, so it was quite interesting and a, and a bit of a wake-up call and an understanding of my responsibility and, and the type of work that I was going to do. And that sort of come in straight away week one. So that was, um, I mean, that ID turned out to not be an ID, ID, which is great, but we had to go through all the, the processes of dealing with such a thing. And, um, mate, it was for a, we were on HKIA, which is a base of about 5,000 coalition and civilian and local forces. Um, so and it was our job to police um, that, that base. Um, and I guess the level of policing that I'd done at that stage was very minimal. Uh, I guess so compared to the level of policing I was doing over there, which included um, assaults, sexual assaults, suicides. Um, uh, Jesus. Yeah, mate, and, and, and mortuary affairs, mate, which I had certainly no in, um, experience on or no training on. So uh, having to deal with dead guys, mass casualty at um, the role two there, we had to basically clear anyone that came in. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that I had to learn very quickly on my feet. Um, and if it wasn't for the guys that I was working with, especially the Danes, mate, those guys were switched on and they knew their shit uh, a lot more than we did as, I guess, Australian military police at that time because our focus had shifted to that close support um, to combat forces at the time at, back home in Australia. So we started to move towards that battlefield circulation control um, uh, called battlefield clearance teams um, and what basically our what 
we call puck handling uh, as part of the strike force. So we, we'd moved towards that more warfighter rather than that policing side of things. So we had to sort of put that police hat back on going back in, going into Afghanistan. But yeah, mate, I had a great time there. I mean, I got to learn a lot, deal with a lot, had some tough times as well and sort of um, some times of reflection. But in, in the end, mate, it, um, it's certainly a, a trip that I'll always remember and probably one of the best trips I've been on. Yeah. Mate, I might just I might just have a quick pause in the break because then I want to come back and I want to hit you with a couple of questions about that particular trip before we move on to your transition. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we'll have a quick break, mate, and we'll, we'll just come back. Toysy. So, yeah, before the break, we were talking about uh, your trip to Afghanistan. You were talking about the type of policing that you were doing. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you about some of the incidents that you were responding to. You mentioned a couple of serious ones like – Mass yeah. casualties, uh, some suicides, that type of stuff. Can you run us through is some of those scenarios and what happened? Yeah, I can, mate. I'll, I'll give you, I guess, best I can. So I think the biggest one for me, mate, that was sort of still sort of resonates a little, and, and mainly because of the personal connection to it, and I guess um, some similarities in the person I was dealing with was the the suicide. <clears throat> so if you think about 2016, that's when the Turkish coup occurred. Um, noting that HKIA was basically force protection and run by the Turkish uh, military, uh, that had a certainly a massive influence on the way that business was done on the base. Um, we had to, I guess, slightly adjust our posture as Australian soldiers within that base. Um, and at the same time, uh, we had to sort of monitor uh, as a policing agency uh, the behaviours, any, uh, I guess, any adjustment in behaviours of the people that were there. Um, in particular, um, one of the Y1s there at the time, um, or equivalent, whatever they call him in, in, in um, Turkey, he ended up uh, taking his own life uh, as a result of what we subsequently found out was his involvement in the coup. Um, so I guess the, the big thing for me at that time, mate, is uh, that was... I was, oh, I see. Well, I think I was at the gym when that happened. I was leg days, mate. So I was literally doing squats. So trying to move quickly after doing heavy squats was very embarrassing when I fell over in the gym uh, when, I, when I got yep. the call. But um, once, I got, <laughs> once I got to the scene, mate, it was sort of um, if there's any uh, indication of, all right, this shit is real, that this shit is real. was, um, And I got briefed at the scene uh, before I went into the room and, and saw old mate on the bed, and um, I guess without going into too much description, but there's not that much to go into, was his room was spotless, mate. Um, it, it, he was laid quite neatly on the bed, um, and he'd um, you could see where the pistol was, um, where the entry wound was, and slightly where the exit wound was. Like, I guess if you think about TV and stuff like that and pictures you've seen, I expected a little bit more mess with a, a Browning, uh, Browning 9mm, but uh, it was actually quite tidy. Um, saw his letter on the on the bedside table there and um, where the round had gone through the wall into the next room. So I went, right over. This is certainly, it's certainly above my pay grade. <laughs> so so I, I, me being a general duties military policeman, we, we had no training in that kind of stuff. So I reached out to our local um, investigator support, uh, ADFIS, um, which didn't go so well. I, I managed to get a GSR kit out, so gunshot residue kit out of them, to do the testing uh, one on, on the um, 
the the individual who had taken his own life, and two the the two witnesses that um, found found the body. So I had to obviously eliminate potential uh, murder in, in that regard and confirm suicide. Uh, letter was on the uh, on the on the bedside table of what happened. Obviously, some Turkish soul couldn't read it, but we had an interpreter there who was able to give us a, a rough idea of what was going on. That gave us the idea. But I think the biggest hit for me was he had a wife and three kids at home. Um, done yeah. 20, years in, 20 years in the military and uh, sort of I can start to see the parodies in that guy. I'm thinking, gosh, things must be pretty bad to leave all that behind and too scared to go home to, to do that. So that was a, a big one for me and we had to sort of get that whole investigation done and the body on the plane within 24 hours um, due to obviously cultural and religious beliefs. Um, and so I had to take charge of then was the mortuary affairs with the um, Roll 2 sergeant. I can't remember his name, but he was a fantastic guy and helped me out a lot there. And and the Danes who were trained in that kind of stuff helped me out a lot. And uh, again, it sort of alludes to a lot of advice I give to everybody if they're in a position of command or leadership. I said, you don't need to know everything. You just need to be able to make decisions based on the information you're getting from the guys around you. And that was a, a perfect example of that was... Um, I mean, dealing with this situation I've never dealt with before, yeah, I can make decisions, I can lead, but I need I need you to feed me info and, and make decisions on that. And um, we got it done, mate. We had to work with the, the diplomats there as well and they had to do their 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 things as well. And But what made it interesting due to, I guess, the cultural and religious beliefs was um, the, the, the general, the Turks didn't want to borrow him. Uh, and subsequently, we, we had to move the body we had to put the body in the back of uh, the the, uh, the vehicle that had to take that to the airport. Oh, sorry, to we, we were on the airport, but it was basically Australian-led that that whole, uh, I guess, repatriation back to Turkey. So that was that was uh, certainly a big deal for me at that stage. And uh, I mean, I think we're still. I don't think we're even halfway into the tour at that time. Okay. Yeah. So was he? Was that? just before he was going home so he was staring down the barrel of going back to whatever was going on in his life and then decided didn't want to do it or was it yeah. just yeah shit okay well well it all went to shit mate because because they didn't know who was in the coup and who was not back home and in afghanistan they all got extended six months and that a lot of these guys are on a 12-month tour wow. so yeah so i mean there's varying issues that may have been at hand, but um, that guy was basically either looking at a, a bad return to whatever was the consequences of him being part of the coup or just the the extension of tour. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So it's again, always hard to tell, hey. Yeah, exactly right, mate. And, and it was evident we had to sort of keep an eye on everybody at that time, mate, because the whole battle group or their battle group got extended. So you saw morale drop quite substantially over that time. Yeah. Yeah. And what um what were these cultural implications and the religious implications that made them not want to go near this guy and not have anything to do with him? Uh, it's the suicides quite taboo. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So that was the, the I think the main thing and and uh and obviously they got to be put in the ground in a certain period of time and without knowing I don't want to make any um, guesses but that's why we had to get it done so quickly and and had the full police report done and. I mean, at the time, I mean, I can't imagine there's going to be many guys from Turkey listening to this or their police force, but I had a Turkish police investigator there at the time who was trying to assist, who subsequently was just 
doing completely the opposite. Uh, we're under threat to arrest him if he kept kept on touching stuff in the crime scene. Um, because I, I thought this would be good having this bloke here. And um, th- they had some Turkey MPs there as well. And I ended up actually developing a um, – I couldn't pronounce his name in our language. Barry was quite um, quite difficult to get around at times. But um, he helped me a lot during that, provide that, I guess, that close uh, cordon and um, crime scene control. And – Helped me get rid of that investigator. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was uh, interesting times. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and what about what was the go with the adverse guys? You reached out to them for a bit of assistance. Were they just cock blocking you? Or were they just fuckwits? Yeah, or both. I'll, I'll be as subtle as I can, mate. I, I just the nah, first fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the first the first interaction I had with them, they said, "Reg, this is not our jurisdiction." I said, "I know." I know it's not your jurisdiction. I just want someone standing beside me that knows what they're talking about when it comes to investigations, um, if, if you wouldn't mind doing that. And without, I guess, no one knowing exactly what who and what was there at the time, when that person got to the scene with me, she ran away. And I was like, all right, uh, it's up to me. <laughs> that was it. What so shit? That they were, you know, they were reluctant to help you in the first place, and then when they yeah. got there, they were like, "Yeah, nah, I'm not in the mood for dealing with a dead body." See yeah. ya. Yeah, well, that's basically the, that's that's the approach of being. That's the feeling I got at the time, and so we just, I guess, did the best we could, mate. And and, and if I was to give myself a, I guess myself a bit of credit in the team, I think we did pretty well considering, and we got we put a pretty good report together, and we we achieved the time frame that was needed, and. Um, yeah, and again, a, a part of my job was to manage exposure as well. I mean, a lot of my, all of my Australian team at the time, I only had one on scene, and they're going, "Oh, we want to help Reg." I said, "No, nah, you can go do something else." So just to minimise exposure to that sort of stuff is um, a consideration that yeah. some people got to have in their heads. Yeah, that's good that you had the emotional intelligence to to not want to. Parade a whole bunch of people past the fucking dead body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and because there's always that morbid fascination with with death and with you know anything traumatic, especially in operations. People want to be exposed to some of those things, but yeah, you know, probably in the best interest that they weren't. Yeah, exactly right, mate. I mean, and I, and I think they both thanked me afterwards. I mean, sometime afterwards, but it, uh, I could hear their frustration on the phone, right, I guess. But I said at the same time, it's no need for you to be here. This is a small room, small space. Let's just minimise the exposure. Yeah, I mean, interesting. Yeah, but um, mate, we, we had another one which was actually quite comical. Um, if I was to be, uh, was it, we got involved with the FBI and CID with this one as well. Um, which because it involved an American um, coming onto base, and when I say coming onto base, walking from the general um, uh, Afghanistan into the gate, which is unheard of. Only Afghanis walk through that gate, not Americans. Um, and so that sort of got the attention of I think it was the Azerbaijanis at the time at the gate, and they've contacted IMP to do a search. It's right on knockoff. So the bloke I sent down there was pretty pretty pissed off, but I uh, said, hey, mate, just go have a look, go search him and see what's happening. And as a result of that search, found a lot of drug paraphernalia, um, found that the ID that he had had been amended, so he'd scratched out the um, the expiry date and made it that year instead, so obviously tampering with that. Um, so we brought him in, and, um, and I said, listen, mate, 
you're not under arrest. We're just keeping you here for your own, for your own protection until we figure out who you are and what you're doing and how you've come to this point. Um, so we we took him into, I guess, some sort of protective custody and uh, said, "Listen, mate, let's get him out of the police station. Let's push him, put him over to our welfare room." And the welfare room, as you know, mate, they got um, a big TV there. I had a table tennis, a couple of seats, and a, a fridge full of um, near beers and and whatever. And um, so we, we put him on the couch and. I haven't I've missed out a very valuable detail here. He's only got one arm. And, um, and <laughs> I've said to Chongy, who was one of my soldiers there at the time, again, very, very solid human, good guy. And um, I said, take him over there. I don't know, give him a drink, just get him to chill out and, and um, just look after him. And he got in there and he goes, you want to play PlayStation? And gone to hand in the remote. I said, Chongy, he's got one <laughs> <laughs> You, you just press the jump button. I'll do the walking around bit. <laughs> so it was quite amusing. He, he was a pretty serious dude, so he didn't find it as funny as I did. Um, but yeah, he said he'd rather sit there and, and read the Bible, which is which was great. Um, so I had to develop a bit of a rapport with that guy um, subsequently to try one to source information out of him, and two just to keep him calm and, and not to try to do the bolt. And um, so at that time. As we were gathering evidence, he sort of admitted that he – we said, where'd you get all this stuff, this paraphernalia? And he goes, oh, it's from a uh, container down in um, whatever the area was down where we still sort our containers. So that container ended up being an Australian-owned container from uh, God knows how long ago because everyone loses track of who how many containers are in there. So it was all medical supplies um, that he was selling outside. I said, okay, well, that's no good. So we subsequently had to um, – I think go and we said, right, we located this container, we'll make this part of our search. I said, have you got any other storage areas on base? And, mate, he had dozens of lockers throughout base. So this guy had been doing this uh, a long time. We also found out that the company he said he was working for sacked him about a year earlier. So he'd been flying around on coalition assets and all this time unemployed, getting paid by someone. So because his job was to check and monitor all the camera systems, security cameras. So more and more we dug into this guy, the more dodgy he seemed, and uh, we just this seems to be a little bit more higher level than a, than what we thought in the beginning. Um, so that what that's what got us in to bring the CID in because he was a civilian. The CID couldn't get involved, so we had to bring the FBI in, and um, they helped us out. Um, the Danes and us did our best uh, to interview and to extract as much information out of the guy as possible, but we just wasn't we weren't getting anywhere. We did searches of all those things, and as a result, literally chock-a-block filled our evidence locker with um, all the stuff that he had, whether it be uh, replica weapons, all these other things that he just, just uh, I guess, shells, expended ammunition, lots of just weird, nothing really too scary, just weird stuff that was of evidence in um, nature. Um, we... During that time, he just kept on bugging me. He goes, Reg, I just need you to collect me a heap of maps, give them to me, and let me go. So I can't let you go, mate, because NDS wants you now. And if NDS wants you, you're in a lot of trouble, and I don't think you'll come back. Because <laughs> so they're basically like the, the Afghanis version of the CIA. So we couldn't just let yeah. this guy outside the base because NDS had basically reached out to the HKI Turks, or the, oh, I can't remember what it was called, down the KNOC, and said, listen, we, we need to talk to this guy due to the person that he's been interacting inside. So, mate, I thought, 
if I was to be, I guess, a little bit more lighthearted, this was getting pretty exciting and pretty interesting for a bloke like for a bloke like me and my team because this was certainly outside the box of what we've been normally dealing with at the time. So, um, and especially now we were working with the FBI, which as Australians, I mean, the only interaction we get with FBI is on in the movies. So that was pretty cool. And um, yeah, so yeah, so we go. We had to sort of back brief them as they took control, and they and they said, "How much you got out of him?" I said, "Well, basically nothing." So they just grilled this guy for about four hours, and and which was good for us, as they got nothing more than we had. And um, but at the same time, we knew nothing more. But I mean, the, the end of the story, we end up with about a hundred and something page report that we had to submit to the FBI for use in federal court in the states. Um, and I guess in, in police speak, if, if I may, he, um, we only got one RFI back from the States and that was basically to take a, another photo of one of the, the, the drug paraphernalia items that we had taken up. So the rest of the report went all the way through. So that was kudos to, to um, Chongi, um, my dear at the time, because he'd done a, a fantastic job doing that. So, yeah, pretty exciting and, and comical times over that. That, that went for about... I don't think the whole police station slept for about 24 hours during that investigation. So, sorry, just I'm going to summarise this. So this random dude just walks in through a gate where he normally wouldn't go, right? So he's alerted himself. Yep. So you, you've been alerted to his presence, right? You've gone down and spoken to him. He's got one arm, yep. got like a forged, modified ID. Yep. So he'd just been dilly-bopping around Afghanistan for the last 12 months, just running his own rock show, running drugs, selling little trinkets, yep. range produce, fucking yep. God knows what, flying around <laughs> on coalition planes, probably doing the same shit on different bases. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this dude's just gone full rogue. It's, like, yep. it's almost like, um, you see that movie Office Space? No, I haven't. I'll have to watch it. Now. Oh, there's, <laughs> oh, there's these efficiency guys going to this company, right? And there's one of their team members that had been like fired like 12 months previously, but some glitch in the system kept him getting paid, right? Oh, so right. this guy kept going to work. Yeah. So their fix was they were like, oh, cool, we just stopped the payment. He'll work it out eventually. Yeah. It sounds like that's what that guy was doing. He's just <laughs> like mincing around going, you fucking cunts. Like, I'm just going to take all your shit and see yeah, your yeah. well, This guy still had access to all the cameras and stuff because that's what he's telling us to do. Oh, my job's to check all the films and stuff in these cameras. I'm going, well, that's a pretty, I mean, sensitive things. So I can't believe this bloke's just been doing this for 12 months without his employer knowing that he's still here. So, yeah, it was quite, it was quite interesting, mate. And you're right, he did have other other items in, on another base so we had to because uh, we had to send the Danes to go collect that stuff um, but yeah it, it was interesting I would have loved to have seen the other end how he went in the States to see what he actually was up to if, if they were able to find out oh so you, you didn't get the like the full brief about who he was and what he'd been doing he was just a dodgy guy that had just been mixing and no. with the wrong people yeah I think it just got so the big thing that made Andy Eskin involved was the, the Afghani that he was seen, uh, that the video footage we had, that the car he got out of would belonged to an Afghani who used to be a liaison officer for the KNOC, for the Turks. So he used to, he used to work on base. Um, so 
because of that relationship made him very interesting to NDS and KNOC uh, and other security agencies in the area. So like I kept on saying to that fella, I can't remember his name, but I said, hey, everything we're doing is to protect you, mate. So if you go outside our little protective bubble, you're on your own. I'm sorry. Yeah, so if he'd been arrested by the local cops, so, yeah. look, he probably would have been like another Rob Langdon thrown in fucking prison for seven years. Exactly right, mate. And that's what we're trying to sort of, I guess, help him out. And at the same time, I, like you said, we didn't get to see the end product, what, who he was, what he was doing there and why yeah. he was doing it. That's probably probably yeah. a funny name to bring up, though, Rob Langdon. Did you have anything to do with him at all? Were you aware of his presence in Afghanistan? No, I wasn't. There was a, a lady there, I can't remember her name, who was a prisoner. I had a bit to do with getting her. She got handed over to a swallow over there. I feel embarrassed not remembering her name, but it was, um, it was quite surreal to see her get off the aircraft. We had a couple of the... I think it was um, one commando blokes over there looking after things, and they, I think it was a joint mission to go get her, and they um, basically got her. So that was a feel-good story, I guess. And it was quite surreal to see her get this little old lady off the plane, um, come on, come on to the tarmac to to see her get released. And she'd been, uh, been, uh, I guess she'd been captured for quite some time at that time, and I, I guess the. Um, the informal expectation was that she wasn't going to come back. Oh, um, is this Marianne or Carrie Ann, someone, some sort of hybrid name? I think it is. Yeah, I think it is Marianne. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting, right? My, um, yep. my missus was over there at that time with the feds working on that particular case. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she was well, awesome. back home, yeah. I think, by that time that she was released, but she was working on that case just previous to when she had been released. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah, that was probably, yeah, that, I don't know. It was just an interesting thing to see. And um, and I've got to, I guess, work with one commander a bit, and that's mainly due to entries and exits off off the, um, the airfield and stuff. And... But I guess sometimes you hear, I think that sort of alludes me to another story. At the time, there was a British company organising some uh, holiday tours in Afghanistan. No. So this is on the internet and everything, mate. So they had all these old old biddies from the UK and other places getting on a bus and driving Makes around sense. Afghanistan. And you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it, but that bus got hit by an RPG. <laughs> <laughs> I'm as shocked as you, Rich. I'm as shocked as you, it's just amazing enough, though, is they all survived. Uh, the truck driver, I mean, the bus driver is the only one that was seriously injured. Um, but I just thought, how irresponsible is that? You've now not just jeopardised those people's lives, but the people that have to go and get these people. Yes. Yeah, that's fucking Jesus. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I've seen people do like, motorbike they, tours of Iraq, and, and I know people have transited through there all like my, my mum, for example, was on the hippie trail in the 70s, 70s, just before the Russian invasion. And she yep. was about to go through Afghanistan and she couldn't because of the Russian invasion. So it's not that uncommon, I guess, for people to tour through war zones, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So it's just um, it's just interesting at th- that time where things are still yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, to be in there. <laughs> Shit. All right. So yeah. did did that? Yeah, but, go um, ahead. Sorry. That, no, no, you go. On. I was going to say, yeah. does that sort of sum up that trip? I mean, it sounds like a lot of interesting stuff was going on. Right? Oh, mate, there's a lot of less interesting things that happen, and um, but that were probably the, the two highlights of that trip, I guess. And I had the opportunity to um, do a BG task to one of the one stars that were over there at the time. So that that was pretty cool, mate, to see the the assets that we put into those kind of tasks because I think. I can't remember the name of the memorial, but I think believe there's a the old British cemetery in the middle of um, Kabul there, and there's a, a bunch of uh, graves and shrines and um, I guess memorials in there for Australians, Canadians, British um, within this one one little graveyard there. And uh, so I think it was Brigadier Pierce at the time was the commander, and I can't remember the bloke who I was looking after, which is quite embarrassing. Um, but he was sort of a last minute sort of job they needed a cppo that was sort of in location and i was lucky enough to be the only other one in country so i got the job and um the, the planning and the assets involved to do that was pretty impressive and, and certainly um opened up my eyes to what capabilities australia had to so it was yeah good for a i guess a a 20 minute task um the re, the, the recon type of the, the part of the job was that was great to go out there with the force protection australian force protection and go do that recon task and to work with the guardian angels and get them to understand my role because a lot of people don't understand who cppos are and what we do um so yeah that was i guess another highlight of that yeah awesome man was um yeah. so did you get to work with some of those contractors over there like any any sneaky peaky sort of people, or is that wasn't really your job? No, no, not on that, not on that trip. The next the tri- next trip I did. Yeah. Next trip, oh, Reg. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me you've done all these fucking trips, mate. All right, take me through the next. Take me through the next one, bro. <laughs> all right, the, the next one. Um, right, so I'll. I'll I'll, I'll just give you a little segue in the middle before Send I get to the it. next one. So in because, because it's actually quite important because it's all about dogs. Um, so I got back from um, that trip in 2007, New CO, new RSM, um, which was one of Sir Ta- um, Stephen Taylor and Colonel Pierpoint at the time. Good dudes. They were my OC and CSM when I was in Delta Company as a dog handler back in the day. So I had a good relationship with them at the time. The previous CEO and RSM uh, were Warren Officer Cliff Bell and Colonel uh, Kurt Sinclair. So to give you just a little bit of context, because I need to sort of shape the story a bit, Colonel Sinclair and Cliff Bell were probably the sledgehammer that the battalion needed. So they came in and basically turned our battalion upside down and wanted us to be that, I guess, that link in with an arms call, that ability to go up the front and directly support and not be a burden to those call signs. So I guess if I was to have one criticism of that time, I don't believe that was advertised well enough to the subordinates and it was just, it was quite shit for quite some time I, 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 don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it because it was um, we were going back to that green kind of policing, which yep. I, I loved. 
Um, but we, we lost a lot of people, some good people, some people that were sort of um, no, no huge loss of losing. And, and it basically reshaped, I guess, the mentality and the culture of the battalion. So that's that was 2015, 16, 17. 2018, 2019 was when Squizzy and uh, Colonel Pierpoint basically came to, to shape that that very rough um, sort of introduction to that world came in. And these were probably the best years of my career in the military was that, that, that 16, 17, 18, oh, sorry, four years, 19. Um, and it was based around those, those four people's vision and, and uh, I guess, direction. And uh, so coming back from that tour, prior to me being in Darwin, we'd been spoken, the, the concept of having a dog capability in the north had been spoken to for many years. But for whatever reason, whether it be uh, logistic, um, capability or money, it never occurred. But I don't know if you've been at Darwin or um, Robertson Barracks, but the blokes that are ex-cavalry oh, or cavalry will know there used to be Courage's Cage there, the big bloody Wedgetail Eagle there. Um, so me, that's, that's the old Two Cab Barracks. Two Cab Barracks is now yeah. occupied by Bravo Company Military Police, uh, one, one Military Police Battalion. So when I got back, we had the CO and RSM come up and give their normal start of the year spiel because they, they reside in Brisbane. And they did bring up the concept of putting the capability up in Darwin again. And I am paraphrasing and I'm leaving a lot of details out because I know I just, the most important thing is, is uh, they said, we want to bring it up here. And I put my hand up and I said, listen, sir, I'm happy to lead that charge. If you give me the, the ways, means and the funding and the, the top cover, I'll get it done. And I guess whether it be my relationship with those two people from previous work, they they basically give, they gave me that opportunity to, to do what I could at my level. And remember, at that time, I was still only a corporate, so this was in 2017. And uh, so to, to, to create something like that as a corporal, obviously you're going to have a lot of hurdles. Not so much in, in your world because you guys get a little bit more push, but in, in a general army speak, we go, well, can you please get your OC or your sergeant to speak to me? Um, but I was able to get around a lot of that, and that was basically from a I guess established relationships and sometimes and people who know me know I've got a bit of a bullish attitude at the time and I'll I'll push through whatever is in my way to a to a degree. And um by the end of two thousand seventeen, mate, we were able to convert that courage's cage into a um a dog kennel uh, that had the capacity to have five dogs. Um at a at a very low cost of about fifty seven thousand dollars. Um, so it's obviously not state of the art. Um, so the next the next thing was to create a capability. Where am I going to get the dogs? Where am I going to get the people? At that time, I was the only dog out there. So that came with its own sort of um, mission. So that was my mission in end of 2017 was to, to find some handlers. And um, I found well, people who wanted to be a handler that were in Darwin, so there was less uh, disruption to the, the core by having them in location already. So... That time I got Scott Parsons, Emma Malloy, and Matthew Phillips went on the next dog course at the end of that year. Subsequently posted into the new, newly established military police dog element in Bravo Company uh, at the start of 2018. So we had a dog capability, and now we had to make it worth it. And that's that's where all the hard work and I guess commitment. And as you know, mate, being a dog handler, it's not a nine to five job. It's you got to live it, and if you don't live it. And you're not a real handler and you need to find something else to do or you've made a mistake. 
um, as far as I can t- as far as I'm concerned. And um, so we had to get those people in that mindset of, of living the job. And I know that's tough sometimes. It's certainly tough for me to, to disengage. But um, we we worked hard and we got ourselves a reputation and we got ourselves embedded within the battalion up the infantry battalion up there to a point of being part of their supply chain. And I think I spoke to that last time. As a sergeant, that's a pretty cool thing because the nerdy side of things, if you're part of their orbit and you're part of their supply chain, you're, you're part of their planning. You're not coming in off the side saying, hey, please take me. And that was um, that was a full intent. Um, and it was sort of, we all did this. Mate, I did all this, and that's what I, I admire, those two leaders I had at the time being, and not just two, I had Dave Hankin, and, um, who was my OC, who basically gave me full reign and mission command in that, that, that ideal. And I don't know if you remember at that time, we, we did speak a lot of the tactical corporal, and I guess I was being used as one of those at the time. And um, and we, I just basically spread your wings, Reg, and go do what you got to do, and, and we did it. And um, if I didn't have guys like Dave Hankin, uh, the, the CO, which was um, Colonel Pierpoint and Squizzy at the RSM, um, who didn't give me that mission command and that, I guess, uh, loose reins, I don't think we would have achieved it um, because we would have had to go through that bureaucratic nonsense and that would have certainly halted things. So don't get me wrong, mate, I did upset people along the way um, and uh, I might have made some enemies and certainly made some good friends, but we got there and that's, um, it, it was a, a probably one of the best, if not the biggest achievement I had in, in my military career was to stand up a capability that was embedded in an infantry battalion within two years. And it was, it, it, it was what was what was comical about it one day is because at that stage we fell under 17 Brigade rather than 6 Brigade that we do now. And the 17 Brigade commander came up and um, as part of that I had to give a military police dog briefing. <clears throat> and he was up in the headquarters and I've given my brief. And he goes, um, I said, hey, do you want to have a look at the kennels? And he's gone, what kennels? The dog kennels. He goes, where are they? Like, They're just out here. He goes, I don't know these kennels. I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> so, I've just dumped a CO. In. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but he was a pretty cool dude. I mean, he's Ramy, and um, so pretty lax guy. I mean, I think he spent the next half an hour just taking the piss out of me in the kennels, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that was that was 2018, mate. I, I guess the, the the special thing for me uh, at that time was. It wasn't just creating it. We, I physically built it, mate. Like I physically, along with the whole um, company, mate, because I got them up there. They would, they dug the foundations. They, they, myself and the CSM put all the um, did did all the prep for the concreting. Um, we we done so much physical work ourselves, and sometimes getting at work five six o'clock in the morning to do that stuff before work and before PT. So it was having that ownership and that um, I guess. Control was what made it so, I guess, awesome uh, over that time. And having that ability to get that support and help, whether it be from subordinates or superiors, was even even better. It was sort of uh, removing those boundaries or those silos of rank and, and position and just getting in as a team and getting it done. Yeah, mate, I think that's a good point. Hey, I think that um, having a mission, having a purpose and an end state, having autonomy and then having everybody on the same yeah team doing the same mission um i don't know why they they don't that isn't the the sop for everyone you know what i mean i think they they always change that mission and there's a there's every two years the command team changes and 
and the mission priorities are different and the, sorry, command priorities are always different. And, yeah. you know, there's shit culture yeah. pushes people out. And, um, but yeah, yeah, it's funny, mate, like, you know, having a mission and a purpose and having autonomy is, I reckon, are so important, man. So mm-hmm. That's why I think SF are so good at that sort of stuff because they've got a mission and they've got autonomy. You know, you've been selected on your attributes and, yeah, you, and you, you've been, you had your skills developed and now it's your turn to go and achieve that mission and you know what that is. Yeah. 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 It's, and that's a lot of trust in that though, if you know what I mean. And, and I guess there was some passive shaping going on in the background by um, through some PMEs by Squizzy and um, Colonel Pierpoint. Um, they were getting us, it's like at that stage, the, the, the CEO had a, um, a readers list and senior NCOs and junior NCOs or those in um, leadership positions had to read these books. So these now become a huge influence in my life. People like Simon Senek, um, uh, Jocko, yeah. um, uh, what's his name? Uh, so reading um, books like um, Leaders Eat Last, uh, Team of Teams, um, uh, and Jocko's obviously, uh, what's, it, what's his extreme, own- extreme leadership ownership, ownership yeah. or whatever it is. And I go, they, they, yeah, they, they were fantastic things. And they're now things that I share in my civilian employment to, to some of my subordinate bosses and, and even my peers and above I go hey read this shit it's it's this stuff is not it doesn't just work in the military these this is why these people are selling it to big executive companies corporate companies is because it works yeah yeah 100 mate yeah I, I, that's interesting that they're giving you like yeah. a like a reading list i know that some um some echelons of the u.s army have like west point for example has a big long reading list um and i've read a couple of books mm-hmm. on that list I think I think that's important, man. I think that's important to learn from the past and those really amazing people. I mean, Jocko, for example, he's he's still pretty relevant yeah. because he was he's only in the SEAL team a yeah. few years ago, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, I think it's important. I mean, in no, I guess the the one rule I had, sorry, the one rule I had when I worked trying to mentor my subordinates once, I'm, especially once I stepped up into that sergeant role and create, I guess, adopting that mentor role was passing those reading lists on and saying, "Hey, there's some there's some really good gold nuggets in there. You get into it." And in the I, when I said to these guys, I said, "Right, I've got one rule here. All right." Rule one is probably similar to your guys is look good, and I don't mean just look good in the in the manner of your hair's looking great today, but your shoelaces are done up, your your uniform is in some good condition. When whenever you're in front of someone, you're doing the right thing. Whenever you put a product, whenever you send me a product, you want to look good. All those kind of things. I said just that's because that is literally three quarters of the battle. The rest is pretty simple because it it become it becomes habitual, and that's when I sort of said, know your craft. Oh, sorry, know your craft. And share your craft. I said, "That's it. That's all yeah. I expect you to do." Yeah, mate of mine had a, had a similar sort yeah, of saying. He says, uh, "Rock up on time and shave. Someone else will fuck that up." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if you do those things right, the rest comes simple, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I never did either of those things right, and I still don't, yeah. obviously. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm oh, stubborn, no. so I just got through anyway. But... Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. As long as you get yeah, the job done, eh? Yeah, that's 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 the thing. <laughs> I'd like yeah. I'd like to think that I'm some super efficient uh, machine that cuts out the bullshit, but I'm not. I just <laughs> I just like the cool stuff. 
Yeah, mate, I, I, believe me, I'm, I'm a big fan of the shiny things, so I, I really do enjoy the shiny mate, things. I'm all about shiny things. Uh, they easily get back yeah. to the Hey, mate, can you just cycle your video? But, yeah, just mate, turn your video on and off just for a second. I just want to see if it goes on and off because I can't see you. your videos turned off. We've done that. Did nah, it come back on? It must just be a loading thing. Ah, it's all good because you cut out before for a minute, so... Don't worry about it. It's all good. I think it'll just load up when the fucking video keeps going. Okay. Um, so, mate, talk talk me through your oh, next sorry. trip. Talk me through that. What year was that and what did you do? All right. So, next trip was 19. So, I got deployed as the IBG to JDF 633 commander um, out of UAE. Obviously, that ex- it extends to the greater Middle East region, Afghanistan, Iraq, Bahrain, yep. Qatar. Uh, excuse me, uh, those kind of areas. Even even got to do a little trip into Cyprus there for a bit. Um, so that was my I guess my first real CPP job. Uh, and I'm going to go back slightly because I haven't probably introduced the fact that I did the CPP course, um, which kind of happened by accident as a result of me going on exercise one look in the UK. Um, ended up in Germany, but. Um, I'll make this very brief, but in that time, uh, I got there and said, right, you're on the CPP course. So I started to train hard, mate, because the CPP course over there is proper horrible, um, and they do – the Brits really, really yes, enjoy running a lot. Tabbing. Um, <laughs> exactly, and tabbing. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I had to – then subsequently after about three weeks of training hard, they said, oh, Reg, sorry, mate, you won't be going. So what does a bloke in Germany do when they're told they don't have to prepare for an arduous course? He goes and gets on the piss um, and eats lots of bratwurst. Uh, so that's what I did for the next couple of weeks. And they, said, they said, oh, Reg, oh, we got you back on that course. I've gone, oh, <laughs> I, look, I look like a sausage. <laughs> and, and they, I, <laughs> exactly. So I had to sort of um, get my head back into uh, things pretty quickly and, and got a huge understanding of the bell curve of fitness during an arduous course pretty quick, or not quickly, um, probably about halfway through the course where I started to not hate my life every day. Um, but, yeah, I went and did that CPP course in the UK, subsequently come back with uh, an international qual that didn't get picked up by Australia until, um, coincidentally, in 2018, the OC of Longmore, the CPPU, sorry, CPU in the UK, laterally transferred and became the 2IC of Italian recognised me and said, how's your CPP stuff going? So it's funny you say that. They didn't recognise my qual. And he goes, I'll fix that. And he fixed it within a week. Um, so lucky enough for me, mate, the following year, I got deployed as um, a CPPO to um, JTF-633 commander. Who I got to have two while I was over there, um, which was Rear Admiral Hill and then um, General Coyle. Um, both, both great both different styles of leadership and different um, approaches to doing their job. But uh, I certainly had a, a great time, especially supported by the CWO, the CWO over there, um, one officer Hurley, who is also Navy, fantastic guy, uh, naval clearance diver, and just a, an absolutely genuinely funny and good human uh, and quite capable as well. So um, having a guy like that um, to sort of sit by and sort of bounce ideas off rather than a general was that was really good. So in that time, mate, I was obviously in um, the UAE um, based there and um, flew out and every now and then into those different locations to do our job. But 
I, I did have the ability to work with the two shop a bit and the contractors in there and getting that, like you said, that sneaky speak, sneaky peaky stuff. And, um, and, and that sort of gave me a, a much better holistic understanding of the assets and what we could do in, in some of those areas we were operating, especially Iraq. So um, that was um, an eye-opener for me. And I guess, it, again, a guy that didn't have that much exposure to that, pretty exciting. And it's, I felt like a school kid sometimes going into those conferences and um, going, oh, this is, this is pretty cool stuff. This is this is real. Uh, I, I can't believe I'm sitting here listening to this kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, early days, mate, under Rear Admiral Hill, not too many trips um, into Iraq, Afghanistan, but the one that we did, which was a little bit scary, and um, I won't go into overly too much detail, but was after, um, what's his bloody name, Sal- Salamani? Oh, Salamani was a, a fucking uh, drone strike. Out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that was an interesting one because we were doing regular visits to Kaji at the time and um, – um, the SF uh, unit in there as well, um, just for visits and obviously um, whatever the, the generals got up to while they were there. But Taji was a big place just to do our show our face and, and visit the soldiers and stuff there. And uh, coming up, coming back into country after that was a whole lot different. Uh, the the demeanour, uh, the the feel of the public. I mean, what was normally pretty friendly and open handed, waving all that stuff, all that kind of stuff changed just in. In a week, in uh, I think our boss at that time, because if you think about it, at that time everyone left. Um, basically, everyone got literally strapped in the C one thirties and um, and C seventeens and, uh, and, and got sent to Kuwait or wherever they went. So it was pretty light on when we got back on the ground until everyone started to come back, and um, yeah, so it was, and that was as a result of obviously the 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 Iran threat of um retaliation and uh we've come back in as we do um and gone to the to Taji and to meet up with the, the school and and, and, the, and uh the the iraqi and the afghan oh sorry the australian soldiers there and that's probably the first time i ever felt like i was there doing the job properly if you know and, and that's going to sound quite unprofessional and a little bit complacent but it was the first time where i realized that i'm a, i have to put myself in front of someone in case that someone's going to threat their life. And um, because of the feeling I got at the time of the tar- at Taji, and you know, probably people are going to laugh at me when they hear this, but it wasn't it wasn't its normal friendly nature. And where people didn't carry weapons at times, they started to carry weapons. When I say the people, I mean the Iraqis. So I remember we were in pretty close proximity at the school one day, and, and this is where that dawned on me, I guess, a, a, as a, a CPPO. Whether the threat was going to happen or not, I put myself between a threat and the boss. And I know if that threat did engage in the, in the, the I guess, maybe what I thought was going to happen due to the, his demeanour, that was my job, was to make sure I put myself in that. But before then, that hadn't really sunk in. Yeah, it got thrown in our faces all the time on course and then prior to and, and in all our doctrine and stuff. But until you actually do that for real, you don't really understand. So that that was probably well, three quarters into the trip where that happened, and um, it made my it made me probably a lot more professional moving forward after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned that the, the Salamani yeah. drone strike. Um, for us here in Australia, we're, we're probably just like, eh, another fucking Arab just got 
fucking drone strike. But for them, it was massive, right? Um, it, particularly because yeah. um, because of the Iran situation. And yeah. you know, previous to the recording, I said that I fucked up one of my guest intros one time, and I said he was a ranger instead of the age of second airborne. Um, that's a guy called yeah. Chris Ramirez, right? And he, him, and the eighty second airborne got reactivated to deploy to Taji. So he was there at the same time because yeah. of that Salamani thing. So um, I, de- I, I understand yeah. where, you, where you're coming from when you say that things were pretty serious. Because um, yeah, like yeah. I, I don't think we probably don't give it enough credence here in Australia because we don't know much about it, and that includes me. But it was a pretty serious event, man. Like the 82nd Airborne to be fucking uplifted and then flown over to Taji, albeit they didn't really do a lot. But, you know, it was a serious event, man. The threat was real. Yeah, they took all the gym. They took all the gym space, that's for sure. <laughs> Good time. When they turned up, mate, there was no oh, space right. in the gym. It was, uh, oh, it was so you remember crazy. those guys being there? Yeah. But it really- yeah, yeah, I do, yeah, because they turned up very very soon after when, when I went. So I'd done two subsequent visits after that event and they yeah, were there. Interesting. Yeah, cool. That's funny. You've yeah. you've overlapped. Yeah. Like the more people I interview, the more intertwined a lot of the stories get. Like I said, you're in Afghanistan, same as as my missus and, you know, in Iraq yeah. with Chris. Yeah. So. No, no. Yeah, it is interesting that way, mate. And it's funny you say that. How many times have been overseas? Whether it be, well, it's always for work, but whether it be in a war country or not a war country, I run into someone that know I know of, know or I know of, and that's been somewhere I've been before. And that's, I guess, that's the army thing or the defence thing. Maybe get around that much and meet so many people. It's you're going to run into each other. Yeah, well. Or have overlapping story. I always say, mate, the world's a small place, but the army's even smaller. So, you know, you tend to sort of like I've run into guys from Third Battalion or Two Commando when I've been overseas on holiday, like in New Zealand or Thailand or or fucking Fiji or somewhere. You know, it was like, hey, hey, bro, you going? So it's funny, like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is, mate. But and that's that's what's good about it too, mate, because there's always someone to talk to in there. Yeah, yeah, you feel you you feel how connected the community is. so, mate, what was that? What yeah. Was that sort of about the height of that trip? Yeah, it was, mate. Um, I, I guess what was also really good was having that ability to have two commanders and see the differences of how they operated, especially when General Coyle got there. Um, she was a lot more out and about visiting, but what stopped that in its in its I mean, put the brakes on that pretty hard was COVID. So obviously I was in you know in the UAE when COVID hit, mate. So that locked us down pretty hard, and and I remember just sort of starting to get the the cabin fever, mate, in that small little base at the UAE, and I just go, oh, I've got to get out of this place. And um, and the boss came in, and she was all she was all quite tender, and she goes, Oh, Reg, I need to have a chat with you. And she goes, Oh, I've had to make decisions on people that aren't really needed here at the moment due to my lack of travel and I can't get out of this base there's probably no reason for you to be here I said you beauty thank you man let me go because <laughs> sitting in there on that base made it um it just I know you just want to I'm sure you understand it's when you're not doing your job mate that's when silly things start to come in and RSM start to get very busy yeah yeah mate exactly and I've I had um uh another guy on the show I know I keep talking about my other guests but um he was he was talking about what Taji was like when there was not a lot going on and there was very inwardly focused. So yeah. I, I totally get it, man. If there's, yeah, if there's no exactly. external threat or no yeah. external mission, 
the focus becomes very internal yeah. and it's all about sleeves rolled down and shaving and fucking haircuts and yeah, yeah. that must fucking must yeah. suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and that, so that's about it, mate. So I guess I left a world that was quite no, dare I say normal, coming back into Australia, going to quarantine in Darwin for two weeks after so I was basically like a caged bear, if I was to be honest, in that little room and not feeding me enough. Um, but, I mean, they're all the little things that we shouldn't really worry about. But at the time, they seemed like a pretty big deal. And then moving into a workforce that I guess was pretty normal at that stage for people in Australia that working from home and all that sort of stuff. And I come back to work and wanting to just get back into training dogs and training people and that stopped. We... Um, we had to sort of take it in turns and I could see the dogs were either getting fat or skinny and all that. And the lucky thing about my position, I was able to stay at, at work for, for some time to, oh, sorry, I could work from um, the office in, in line with the restrictions that we in. It was just the soldiers that we couldn't interact. So I felt quite, I felt like my hands were tied at that time and trying to get things happening. And obviously we had the, our other commitments whether it be infantry, whatever, non-call of uh, all of this border control stuff that were continually taking my soldiers away. And that was a frustration in itself because I, we've also got dogs that we need to look after. And and then at that, we had a new command structure as well when I got there. And uh, that was a little in various levels of command, be it the, the platoon commander, sergeant, OCs and CSM, all different. And had a completely different mindset to what I was used to and what I had, um, which made my transition from that tour a hell of a lot more difficult than it ever been before. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, it's funny you mentioned that that sort of uh, those institutional things. I find generally that's the stuff that frustrates people the most and pushes the most people out of those organisations. Yeah. So is yeah. this is this sort of yeah. the beginning of the end of your military career? Why you've decided to start leaving? Yeah, it certainly is, mate. So that basically happened. So obviously, I had as you as you you got your blokes that are loyal to you and all that kind of stuff that kind of want you. I mean, definitely want you to hang around. And and due to the level of training we were doing at that stage, and we were doing some pretty good stuff before and, and, and then we started to get back into a pretty good run of things when I got back and, and all those sort of things, like you said, that institutionalised mindset and governance and all the other stuff, which is important, especially in my, my current uh, employment. But um, I thought it was basically my Achilles heels to create what I sort of spoke to very early in this conversation was that that training to apply violence on a on an opponent in the interest of Australia. And that's all that was ever in my head. This is what I'm supposed to be doing, not this other stuff. Can someone else do that while we do this, please? Yeah. And um, and whether that be ignorant and arrogant to say, that's, that's I'm sorry, that's that's how my head worked at the time and, and probably still does to a degree. And so I had all those, I guess, internal, um, I guess, battles to deal with um, that resulted in me sort of, getting angry at times, getting sad, um, I guess striking out a bit, not physically, but uh, verbally and, um, and with my actions at times. And I started to realise that, um, uh, I'm sorry if I'm going down a, a personal point here, but I started to think, I don't believe this is my place anymore. This is not, This is, and I'm sure you've heard it from many people, this is not the army I joined. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and it, hadn't been, it hadn't been the army I joined for a long time. 
but I guess I protected, I guess I kept myself protected by a bunch of people that I kind of picked an influence to be around me and I guess influenced those commanders and subordinates around me too. I know make me feel comfortable in, in the army that is today. Uh, but I didn't have that anymore when I got back from uh, overseas. Yeah. So when did you actually make the decision yeah. to leave and what year did you get out? So, so 2020, mate. So that was September, I okay. think. Yeah, yeah September. Sure. Yeah. September 2020, I decided to get out, which was a surprise for my wife because I didn't tell her. <laughs> so I basically told her, I said, I put me discharge in, I can't play this game anymore. And um, as much as I love the guys, and, and I, that was probably the, the most hardest part of the battle was because you get the diggers going, oh, Sergeant, we, we really, really need you here. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to fluff up my own ego there, but that's exactly what they yeah. said. And uh, and, and I've gone, it made it really hard, mate, because I'm going, oh, well, I've got, I've got other things. I've got Reg to look after and I've got my family to look after. Right now, this is not the influence I need in my life. So I had to make that decision to say, sorry, guys, I've got to go. And, um, and it wasn't, that wasn't an easy decision, mate, which I'm sure you've gone through yourself. It, it, that, was a, that was a tough deal. I said, that's 21 years, mate. So it's a long time in the military um, to, to make that disconnect. But um, I was confident I'd be able to make something of myself outside and, and um, without a job, I I discharged. I had three months leave up my sleeve and managed to get employment pretty quickly and started in the the, the health and safety. Yeah. After that. Well, mate, talk me talk me through initially leaving. What's that like after twenty one years? Did you did you stay on long service for that those three months, or you just went straight into work? You know what? It's funny. I pass this advice on everybody. If you have got long service, use it. Don't. Don't go straight to work because I was, mate, I'd literally just done a six-month deployment, got back, got straight back into work and then discharged and started the job three oh, weeks right. later. okay. So, yeah, I took, I took three weeks off, but I, I hadn't really decompressed, if you know what I mean, at that stage. So I just went straight into work. And, um, yeah, it was hard, mate. Like, uh, it, those mannerisms, those, those attitudes, that cultural sort of indifference that we have to the normal civilian community doesn't go away, mate. It's still with me and it still will be probably till I, until I die. But it, that was a bit of an adjustment going into a civilian workforce so quickly. What made it a little bit easier was I was in construction, which are certainly not bloody uh, choir boys. So it made it a little bit easier doing it that yeah, way. Yeah, probably a bit more rough and tumble, a bit more your crowd. Yeah, exactly. So that was, yeah. But um, at the same time, mate, I I created what what was canine territory. Um, we sort of started as uh, I trained dogs, or sorry, developed dogs and sell them. Um, I'd sold at this stage. I sold a dog, Alo. She was the first dog I sold in two thousand twelve. She sold Northern Territory Police. Very very good dog. Um, she ended up getting a couple of commendations for sure. her time as a as a dog with the Northern Territory Police. She only, she only passed away a few oh, years right. ago. Um. Yeah, her hand was Chris McKellar. Good guy. Still talk to him. He's no longer in okay. the dog section. Um, I've got another dog called Bruce, who I sold to Northern Territory Corrections. Fantastic dog, Malamire. First Malamire I trained from scratch. Um, just an absolute, absolute buffhead and loves to chew. So good dog. Um, and the other one was Anakin, uh, who is uh, I just sold to Neptune Private Security Mob up in the Northern Territory as well. Uh, who was a, an accident uh, between one of my my dogs at home and uh, Bruce, uh, so it was a crossbreed between Mal and Shep, um, and ended up turning out quite well. 
So uh, he's doing a pretty good job with um, Neptune Security in the Northern Territory, as far as yeah, I've been cool. told. So um, on top of that, I sort of I really can capitalise on a lot of the stuff I learned, especially you know I alluded to at the beginning from SASR from that serial base or scenario-based training. And so I started to develop, I guess, a package, um, a decoy slash serial-based training package uh, that I started to, one, give to my guys in the Army, and two, um, Northern Territory Corrections were the first ones to pick me up for to, to deliver that package and went really well. And then subsequently Northern Territory Police brought me in firstly to do all their certification for all their docs. So as a, 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 I guess as a third party, so there's got that transparency that they're not just passing off their own dogs and handlers. So I did, I think, two runs of that, and then they asked me to come in to, to deliver that decoy slash serial-based training package. So that's that's the kind of area I want to move towards in 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 the Canine Territory brand is that, that training uh, methodology um, side of things. Uh, mate, perfect. Yeah, still there? Yeah, got you. Oh, sorry. The audio, I was like, oh, God, the audio is about to fucking shoot itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it just cut out at the end, so I thought it trailed off. I was like, what's going on? Because your video is not playing on my end either. So I was like, ah, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, okay, so, so, so I, I, heard, I heard all the what going. you said. Um, so is is that what you're yeah. doing now? Are you going into the consulting world? Are you sort of you've already got a foot in the door, really? Yeah, that's my intent, mate. So at this stage, yes, I still I guess I've got a foot in the door still informally with the Northern Territory Police. My, my good friend Stevie Dalrymple up there is uh, one of the senior connies who's sort of taking control of uh, the training and um, I guess procurement of dogs and stuff up there, and we we keep constant contact and. Um, but my intent is hopefully in, in the future is to make contact with uh, similar agencies down here, whether it be South Australia Police, South, South Australian Corrections or, or, or whoever it may be. Um, I guess um, that's where I feel comfortable, I guess, in those agencies rather than that civilian-based level stuff where you're dealing with pets and such, which I don't have a problem with. It's just, a, I guess, for satisfaction and, and something that I believe I've got a, a lot to offer is, is that serial-based training side of things in that, that government uh, aspect side of things. Yeah, definitely. That's similar to me, mate. Like, you know, I moved out of the pet stuff into the into the mostly government stuff now, and that's where I feel more comfortable as well. So I, I totally get it. I think it's a good, I think it's a good decision. Yeah. I think it's, you're probably in the right place then. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, mate. I mean, if not, I mean, it's been a good break. I think I spoke to you offline about having about 12 months to not live dogs. I mean, because you know, I've lived and breathed it for so long, I didn't want to risk it being a chore. And um, that's why I sort of made that conscious decision, which has been very difficult, mate, not to get back into it. But I said, oh, no, I just need to give, one, my family some time and, two, me some time to just reset, uh, redevelop and uh, refocus once, I, once we get going. Hey mate, <laughs> it just shoot, it just <laughs> shoot itself again. It right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get yeah. There. Sorry, mate. It, it fucking yeah. shoot itself sorry. again. I'll just edit all this shit out, or, or not. Because <laughs> I think it was just me sitting here. Because I was, I went on Instagram. I was getting a lot messenger because I'm using my phone to fucking yeah. to talk to you. So I was like, oh, I can't text yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, fuck. We'll, sorry, mate. Before the fucking before the, the 
video and audio shit itself, mate. Um, uh, what were you talking about? You were um, talking about the forming relationships with the, with the cops down there and in South Australia and, and looking to get in the contract, yeah. uh, consulting yeah. sort of world, sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's my intent, mate. Just not entirely sure how I'm going to achieve that at this stage. Um, but hopefully, I've done a little bit of work with um, the Staris prior to. I'll hopefully make, re- make that reconnection and and um, meet up with the, the doggies. Yeah, nice, mate. I think that'll be that'll be a really cool thing to do, bro. Am I still am my audio yeah. still coming through? Yeah. Okay. My audio Sorry, still mate. coming through? Okay. Yeah, it is, but I'm I'm echoing, so I don't know what's going on there. Ah, uh, I can't hear it on my end. We'll see how it comes out in final recording, mate. Okay, good. Um. Yeah. All righty, dude. Hey, mate, um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, Reg, and if they want to look at a bit of consulting work or just ask you about your career or just have a chat and say good day, um, where do you want them to reach out to, bro? Oh, mate, the easiest way is Instagram. Um, I guess look up Canine T, the handler. Um, that's the best way to get me. Um, if, if not, through many contacts people have, we all interlink at times. I'm sure you'll get a hold of me somehow. Easy, mate. So K9T under, is it underscore handler on Instagram. Yeah, that's Easy right. done, mate. Um, hey, look, dude, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, mate. Yeah. Um, uh, but, dude, thanks so much for coming on, man. I very much appreciate your time. Um, and that was fucking – that was a good chat. Oh, it's been mate, awesome. you surprised me a whole bunch of times in that yeah, convo with a bunch of stuff you did. And I was like, hey, <laughs> did, did you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, then my next trip. What? Oh, it's just going to be a spot, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. It was. No, I, I really appreciate it, mate. Yeah, right. awesome, mate. Hey, thanks for coming on, dude. I'll press the stop recording button, but don't hang up. Easy. Cheer, mate. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, subscribe to the YouTube channel, give us a rating on your podcast platform. Or go to origincanine.com for our tactical canine equipment, which includes collars, leads, harnesses, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, guys.